Hola, Steve. This is Alan Green coming to you from the uh, Danger Bird ride. I'm on the North Loop, and uh, on paper, it looks like you can do more miles than you can in a day than you think. <laughs> but uh, I started yesterday and camped last night. Didn't get as far as I wanted to, but you know. Anyway, just uh, thinking about you, brother. <laughs> this beautiful place called New Mexico is uh, beautiful, but man, it's harsh to ride in. And uh, the last time we were together was in New Mexico, and you had just ridden some of it. So, anyway, I hope all is well with the Back 40 Tribe, and and I hope you're doing well, my friend. I'll. I'll PM you or, or call you later and let you know how this went and uh, keep the rubber side down, as you say, but it's kind of hard in some of these rocks. So <laughs> anyway, have a great one, Steve. Cheers, brother. Hello again, friends. Welcome to My Back 40, the My Back 40 podcast. I'm your host, Steve O'Shaughnessy, Alan Green. So good to hear from you, brother. Um, I don't know, those of you who've listened to the podcast, if you've heard me tell stories about the divide and, and Alan Green, but Alan reached out to me, um, would have been a few months before my divide start, and he said, you know what, man, I am going to handle your end of trail logistics. I'm going to get you, I'm going to pick you up in Antelope Wells and I'm going to take you to El Paso and I'm going to get a room and I'm going to um, take you to the airport and make sure that you end the, your divide run um, low stress. And I have to admit that knowing that, going into the divide and knowing that I was going to have um, a good friend and, and a good listener at the end to pick me up and to take me basically that last couple hundred miles to the airport was um, <laughs> a huge weight off my shoulders. And I remember, you know, and I've said this on the podcast before, that the logistics are the hardest part. I mean, really riding the divide is, I'm not going to say easy, but it's a lot easier than planning. How am I going to get to the start? How am I going to get away from the finish? Um, those are things that you have to consider. And I just remember being so grateful and so relieved to have that that connection. And uh, another, I've told this story a few times as well, but the the stretch into Silver City was one of the most mentally challenging. That was a mentally challenging day. We had we had ridden so far. I can't remember how many miles. Uh, when I say we, I was you know meeting up, kind of yo-yoing with some other people, and um, ended up riding with Jacob. Uh, a little bit, but it was so hard to get to Silver City. And I'm going to remember the, the name. I'm not going to remember the name of this town, but it was uh, um, Mogoyan, I think. That's there. There was that mining ghost town there, and then we went into I think it was Glenwood for resupply, and then from there it was the push to Silver City. A bunch of pavement and a bunch of desert riding, and then a then. Uh, and then the last stretch, it had to, I think it was like 55 miles into um, Silver City from there. And it was just a series of false summits. It was paved, 
uh, the sun was setting and ended up finishing it in the dark, but it was just such a long day. And I remember just yelling into the night. It's so embarrassing to look back on, on my mental state at that point, but I was just, I was shattered. And I remember rolling, you kind of the last summit you hit before you, you roll down quickly into silver city. And I remember just feeling so much relief to be finally at that town. And I knew that Alan was going to be waiting for me there. And I can't remember what time of night it was. It seems to me it might've been 10 o'clock, maybe between 10 and 11 PM. And as I'm rolling down, there's nothing going on. There's no traffic. There's no people. It's just darkness. And I hear the sound of, of one person clapping, just one person just clapping for me. And I just, I remember I looked around to see where it was coming from and I saw it was Alan. And uh, I cried a little bit when I saw him because I was so mentally shattered that day. And um, then he picked me up, put my bike on the, on the in his rack, hopped in his truck and we went to a Denny's and I probably ate like 2,000, 3,000 calories there. It was, it was amazing. Had a pretty good night's sleep that night. And then the next night or the next day uh, morning was uh, I slept in a little bit. It was about 200K to Antelope Wells from there. And other than one slight routing mishap, which was uh, the result of my Wahoo locking up, and I only went, what, two miles off route. But um, other than that, that was just one of the most amazing days on the divide I've ever had. Knowing that I was going to get to the end, um, I knew I was going to finish. Um, I was feeling fantastic. It wasn't super crazy hot. Um, and it was an emotional day. And and just to have, again, to have that uh, end of the line logistics worked out for me was, was um, it was amazing. It was just amazing to have that. So Alan Green, thank you for your voice intro. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your support over the last, you know, within over the last six months, eight months, you know, maybe a year since we've been, we've been chatting. Your friendship is, I'm grateful for, for having met you. I know, you know, our relationship was this e-relationship, e-friendship kind of online and chatting back and forth through Instagram and, and eventually through text messages and, and FaceTime. But this, this is what the divide is. The divide isn't necessarily just a ride and a race. It's the beautiful humans that you meet along the way. And I met some beautiful humans on the divide. And I, and that to me is one of the most memorable parts of that ride. It's just all the people, all the trail magic, all the friendships, deep friendships I forged on that ride. Um, and, uh, and Alan, you were a huge part of that. So brother, I love you. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your support. And, uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. So it's interesting. I'm actually podcasting to you from Canmore right now, staying at a very good friend's house here in Canmore. And I'm looking out the window right now. It's snowing. Um, it's, I don't know what the temperature is. Minus one, minus two, not too bad. I don't have my fat bike with me, but I certainly will be bringing it in the future. So those of my, those, my Canmore friends, um, I plan to be spending more time in the Canmore area. Um, and I'd love to connect with some people for some rides because um, I need to be shown around where the riding is because <laughs> I'm not too familiar with it. Um, so yeah, if, if you're hearing this and you live in the Canmore area, please reach out to me 
and uh, let's start a conversation, um, namely Tim and my coach Ryan and Guy Stewart and um, God, who else is in Canmore? Um, Kyle Messier, Sarah Hornby, uh, Megan Dunn, uh, all you folks. Send me a note, reach out to me, and uh, let's coordinate something because I'd love to go for some uh, for some riding here and definitely some some uh, night riding. I'll have my lights charged up, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, my fat bike has received a couple upgrades. Um, Redshift Sports, uh, as a supporter of the podcast and of me, they've sent me a um, a shock stop suspension stem as well as their suspension seat post. I just got the suspension seat post in the mail the other day, and it is on my muckluck. And uh, I can't wait to get to get that thing out for a ride. And um, what I love about their equipment is that it's so sleek. I mean, for the for the um, you know the the technology that's in there, it's just very very well engineered, very well designed. And I was a bit shocked by how light the suspension seat post was, given um, you know it's a sprung unit, comes with a couple springs. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a heavier dude, so I had to put in the supplementary spring in there and then there's a preload nut at the bottom of the post. Um, and then of course the shim I had to get for, uh, cause they're all 27, two posts, I believe. And then you just, you know, shim it to whatever size you need. And, uh, it looks great on my bike. Um, I haven't taken it for a spin yet, but I plan to do that, uh, next week when I get back to Invermere and get, get out my equipment again. And I'm looking forward to, to taking it for a spin. And I, I, if you go back to the archives, I did do a podcast um, with uh, Eric DeBrun from Redshift Sports. And we talk about their technology. We talk about their origin story. And we also uh, I, I also did a write-up. If you go to myback40.org slash words, I did a write-up um, of my kind of impressions of the uh, stem. At that point, I had the 30-degree rise stem uh, on my bikepacking rig rig with a Jones bar. And what I found, I wanted to go for, I don't know why I wanted to go for that actually. I think that's all they had at the time, perhaps. Oh, I wanted to go shorter. I wanted to go a higher rise because I knew that it's an 80 millimeter long stem. And then by going 30 degrees, it would bring my hands back a little bit. But what that ended up doing is putting my hands a little bit further behind the pivot point of the stem than I would have preferred. And that means on the Jones bar, as you move further back, on the bars, your hands are actually either coming close to the pivot or going behind the pivot, which was um, basically locking out the suspension, for lack of a better word. Because, you know, uh, if, if your hands and your weight are right in line with the pivot, then you're not going to get any flex. So then they sent me an 80 millimeter um, plus minus six degree stem. I put that on. It's way better. Um, I don't run the Jones bar on my, on my fat bike. I do run a flat bar. It's actually the salsa salt flat. Uh, I think there's 11 degree sweep. So even that takes me a bit further back than I prefer, but the, the give in the, in the, in the suspension stem is way better. Um, but can't say enough about that stuff. It really attenuates all that kind of little, the little chunder and, you know, roots and, you know, it's, it's a 20 millimeter travel, uh, suspension stem. So it's not like it's going to take huge hits, but it definitely smooths thing smooths things out in terms of like washboard, baby heads, you know, whatever you're riding. Uh, and I honestly, I think it would be a great supplement for if you're running like a, a suspension fork, the, the suspension stem would really be great for sucking up all the little stuff, you know, that the fork may not respond to. And you could tune them 
accordingly so you could use them both in conjunction with one another and you'd have a really nice smooth front ride uh, smooth ride up front so can't say enough about their products and i do have a promo code for you if you head on over to redshiftsports.com and you put in the promo code mb40 you're going to save 15 percent there so i encourage you to go check them out read up on their technology read about some of the uh, testimonials people have put out there about their products and uh in this um, podcast with Eddie O'Day. He actually ran uh, Redshift equipment on his bike, and uh, he says in the podcast that it really helped increase the comfort of his bike. So, if you're running fully rigid and you want to add a bit of cush, Redshift Sports, and use the code MB40, and you're going to save fifteen percent. And you know, I I run the I run the promo code MB40 across all my sponsors. I think that makes it easy. You don't have to remember all these different codes, but MB40, you can use that with Cycling 101. If you're not happy with your current training program, winter's just getting started. You might have some big plans for next year. Maybe you're riding the divide or you want to do some other shorter races and you're not happy with your training program, reach out to Ryan Draper at Cycling 101. And if you use the code MB40, you're going to save 25% off a consultation, which is awesome. That's a huge discount. Uh, and you don't see 25% discounts um, on podcasts very often. So really get out there and take advantage of these uh, great discounts while they're running. And again, uh, Cycling 101, MB40, you're going to save 25% off a consultation. Now I'm hanging out in camera. I want to uh, hook up with Ryan and maybe he can kick my ass a little bit, get my, my butt into gear because I've honestly really slipped. Since the divide, and of course, people who listen to the podcast know there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in my life right now. My routine has gone to shit. <laughs> I'm just trying to find my path back. Uh, it'll come in time. I'm just trying to give myself grace and patience, and uh, I know it's going to come around sooner or later. Just so much going on for me. But uh, yeah, again, MB40, 25%, you're going to save off of Cycling 101 consultation. So reach out to Ryan, and you will not regret it. And of course, another great promo code I have for you is with Dynamic Cyclist. I heard from Sarah the other day that I've had a number of signups through using this promo code MB40. Uh, MB40 at Dynamic Cyclist is going to save you 25%. And this is a great way to support the podcast. You support my supporters. You support the podcast. Great way to do that. So all of you out there who have signed up with Dynamic Cyclist over the last year or so, I thank you. You're you're helping me keep the podcast running. And I really hope that it's helping you stay running as well, because there's nothing like a great stretching program, yoga, strength, conditioning, and all that helps you basically ride your bike better, right? When you're in balance and you're strong and you're flexible, it helps you ride your bike better, longer, faster. So Dynamic Cyclist, check out the programs they have there. Sign up for their seven-day free trial. And if you use the promo code MB40, you're going to save 25%. And it's a great way to support me here at MyBack40. So please check them out. And let me know, those of you who are out there using Dynamic Cyclist now, let's hear it. Like, tell me what you think of it. Um, you know, maybe we could do a podcast with some, some testimonials about uh, Dynamic Cyclist and just how... Uh, participating in their programs has helped you. I know for me, um, if I didn't have Dynamic Cyclist, I wouldn't have finished the Tour Divide. I honestly think that. The year before doing the yo-yo, I completely wrecked myself, and I'm still dealing with some injuries on my left side, but Dynamic Cyclist keeps me mobile, <laughs> and it will help you too. So don't forget, MB40 is going to save you 25% at Dynamic Cyclist. 
you know, there's a few other people I want to thank as well. I want to thank Rollingdale Cycle for building me an amazing titanium bikepacking rig. Um, I never thought I would ride a custom bike. And all I can say is that the process of getting a bike built, uh, basically tailored to your own dimensions, uh, was a, a super profound experience for me. And then also, I am the first Rollingdale cycle rider to get to the end of the Tour Divide. And all I can say about that bike is that when I finished, I had no hand numbness, I had no butt pain, no back or neck pain, and it, it's all because, because of a custom bike. And I know that custom bikes are expensive, but these bikes are forever bikes. This isn't something that you just, you're going to buy and then turn over. You know, this is a forever bike. And I certainly have no regrets in reaching out to Dale Marchand at Rollingdale Cycle and getting this bike built. So I'm pretty sure he's a busy guy. So if, you're, if, you, if you've been thinking about getting a custom bike, reach out to Dale at Rollingdale Cycle. Engage him in a conversation and just see what he could do for you and you will not regret it. So again, Rollingdale Cycle, nothing but good things to say about them. I also want to thank Jay at Autolus. Uh, Autolus Incorporated. Um, he turned me on to the waxed chain thing, and uh, I I love it. I just I I love the waxed chain thing, especially more more for kind of around town, like your day to day riding. I didn't find that chain waxing was that valuable on the divide, especially riding through Canada, because it was like it was so gnarly, it was so wet, it was so muddy, and honestly, the wax just didn't stand a chance in those in those conditions. But but to be able to run a wax chain just in your regular environment, you could put hundreds of kilometers of trail riding in on one wax job. And um, I had nothing but good things to say about that. And um, even the chain I rode, um, when did I flip my chain out? Um, I can't remember where I was, where I, fl- I flipped the chain. And then I probably rode about a thousand miles. And when I got to the shop, um, they uh, measured my chain. It was in Salida, actually. They measured my chain, measured zero. So this is the thing about about wax and chains in certain certain environment is you can really prolong the life of your entire drivetrain. So nothing but good things to say about them. Autolus Incorporated, check them out. I want to thank Curtis at Spandex Panda for all his support. Um, I know, Curtis, that I've kind of dropped the ball on a project that we're working on, but I just haven't had any time, um, and I'm going to pick up on it pretty soon. I might have some cool products hitting the store soon, so stay tuned for that. So, Curtis, thank you. I also want to thank Lakeside Bikes in Invermere for their support, um, putting my bike together, getting my bike ready for the divide, helping me out with parts. Um, you know, I think supporting your local bike shop is super, super important. And if you're visiting the Invermere area, you, you come out coming out with your fat bike, or, you know, I know a lot of people flock to Invermere in the spring because we're pretty much we dry out the fastest in the Kootenays. So a lot of folks come in to Invermere to check out the dry trails we have, and and also throughout the winter we have great grooming in Invermere. Um, I would say I think last year there were well over thirty kilometers of of groomed fat bike trails. Uh, the Columbia Valley Cycling Society is an amazing uh, society that puts a lot of effort into the, into trail advocacy. So I can't say thank you enough to them for all the work they're doing in the Invermere area for promoting trails and trying to get more trails built in the area. So if you're ever in Invermere, whether it be winter or summer and you need your bike looked at, check out Lakeside Bikes. Great service. Uh, I have a great selection of products there and I cannot recommend Lakeside Bikes enough. So check them out, please. 
All right, this week on the podcast, I bring you a conversation with Eddie O'Day, who just recently completed the Eastern Divide Trail. This trail is long. goes from St. John's, Newfoundland to to, uh, the Florida Keys. His actual mileage was 6,235 miles. He completed it, I think, in 79 days. Um, And he was using this solo journey to raise funds for the Georgia Cycling Association. He raised something like $41,000 for the organization. So he thanks a whole bunch of people at the end. Uh, But it was a great conversation. We talked about the logistics of such a ride, some of the problems he had, some of the highs he had, the the trail magic he experienced. And you know what I really liked about this this conversation is he's a storyteller. So he had some great stories to tell. Um, I gave him a lot of space to share some of the stories, and I really enjoyed talking to Eddie about his experience, and I hope you enjoy it too. So without further delay, I bring you Eddie O'Day. Eddie, thanks for connecting with me. This is great. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I don't know if you listen to my podcast before, but I'm pretty cash. What I like to do is just connect with people kind of like we're having a beer. Cool. And just have a chat. Well, I got a nice big cup of coffee right here. I should have said coffee. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) How are you feeling? Uh, It's been a couple weeks now, right? About two. Yeah. So every day is a, a touch better. But a touch more, um, you know, back in July normal. Yeah, getting a little bit back to back to baseline. Yeah. Uh-oh. Um. Before we dig in, let yeah. me do what you need to do, a, man. Yeah. Sorry. Don't be. I just need on. to make sure I don't lose power. I guess. I feel unprepared. No, dude. I was scrambling around too. <laughs> um. <laughs> I actually have to go to my bike to get my cash battery. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So yeah, whenever I think life is normal, it's uh, it's not. Yeah, it's so funny. It's like you get back from a trip and and it's just a yard sale of stuff everywhere. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, my color looks ho- so horrible in this video. Turn it off. Change background. Mute. Huh. They are. Back up, dogs. Well, it looks beautiful there today. Oh, the weather is so perfect today. Actually. I have to sit outside and drink coffee. Yeah. Give me one second, okay? I'll be right back. Oh my god. Anyway. Pasty white guy. 
guy. <laughs> Canadian Irish guy. <laughs> yeah, you're probably not getting a lot of sun up there right now, are you? Yeah, it's usually dark around. Is it around seven? We live really close to the um, the time change line between um, Mountain and Pacific. So in the summer out here, we get uh, it, it can be you know light out until ten thirty sometimes ten thirty at night. Yeah. So it's not as bad when you're if you live in like Vancouver, you're getting it gets dark around four thirty midwinter. Oof. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. You finding all your stuff okay? Um, yeah, sorry, one more. Yeah, it's all good. Man. There it is. One more piece. It's just kind of the... Acorns. Okay. Yeah, people. Beauty. Better. Better. Beautiful background. Very nice. I have my kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Cool, man. Well, thanks for joining me. It's great. Again, I, like I said, it's I, I like to just keep it pretty casual. I've got kind of a list of things I wanted to talk about, but you know. Okay. Um yeah. Where where are you? You're in Atlanta? I'm currently in um Birmingham. Homewood, technically. All right. Alabama. Awesome. Um, Good riding down yeah, there. Or? Uh, there's a lot of great riding down here. Yeah. yeah, and the big plus of being in the south is we can hit it most year round. Yeah, there's. I mean, I, I sound like a dummy, but you guys you get any snow down there at all? Oh, like a day or two. Super rare. Um, you go a couple hours north towards the mountains, and they they get more, but it never lasts. I mean, right. Yeah, I was just switching over my tires last night on my fat bike. Because <laughs> we got some, we got a little bit of snow in the valley yesterday, and I'm like, I only have two bikes right now. I have my bike packing rig, and which is like a 29er, and my fat bike. I'm like, ah, you know, I might as well just ride the fat bike now, because before I know it, we'll be on, uh, we'll be on riding on snow, and we groom trails up here too. So. Uh, the, our bike club, actually the Columbia Valley Cycling Society, they go out and groom fat bike trails all around here. So it's like riding single corduroy single track in the winter. It's pretty fun, actually. That's, that sounds pretty cool. It's fun. Crashing uh, doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you probably get some, uh, you don't have to worry so much about mileage, right? The pace slows down a bit. And- you really have to adjust your expectations riding fat yeah. bikes because the strain's a lot higher and... Um, I did, it was, it was a couple winters ago that, during the, um, the fat Viking kind of program that was running. I did a hundred K on the fat bike. It was, that hurt a little bit, you know, cause it was, 
I don't know how long it took. It must have been six six hours or so, and it was just on a on um you know a gravel road that had been cleared, so it wasn't like I was struggling too much. But yeah, a Not lot really. of strain, a lot of strain. I want to get a trainer actually. I'd really like to get a trainer. No, you're shaking your head. I don't know. Like it just be, it sounds, it just not that I'd be on it all the time, but it would just be nice to get some wiggles out, you know, in midwinter. But I hear you, man. Like I'm all about just riding the bike, no matter what the weather kind of thing. I I can say that because I I mean, I live in the South. It's going to be almost 80 today. So, and I can shake my head at the trainer because I can just go outside this afternoon and ride a bike. No, I get it. I get it. Uh, us Canadians, you know, depending on where you are and if you don't ride a fatty, then yeah, you got to get your wiggles out somehow. What's your origin story, man? Like where where were you born and raised? Um, so I grew up in um, Connecticut, a town called Ledyard, southeast corner. Um, dad was in the Navy and born on the sub base, moved away for a few years to Nebraska and then came back to um, back to Connecticut until... Uh, left when I was 18, um, bounced around the world after that. I went, uh, made Nebraska sort of home base. It was my mailing address, but I was very rarely there traveling all over the place. And that went on for four or five years. Like traveling by bike or just back? Oh, I wish that would have been, no, I wasn't, I wasn't that cool back then. I was, a uh, um, a cable technician. So I'd run around to wherever they sent me, you know, commercial, um, places, hospitals, post offices, whatever, um, installing phone and network cables. Um, but that was kind of the beginning of, of biking was I got bored with how I was spending my weekends, um, which was, you know, watching football, drinking beer, doing nothing particularly productive. Um, so I bought a bike, bought a mountain bike. I was in, um, the Philadelphia area, Pennsylvania. And, uh, then you couldn't just pull out your phone and like you know get trail forks or whatever and find a trail. You had to go to the bike shop and ask, and they t- wouldn't tell you about them. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, who are you? I yeah. don't know you. I'm not going to tell yeah, you where the trails. Yeah, you go are. make friends, and because uh, I didn't know that, you know, I just took them for the word that there was no trail. So I did a lot of riding on the road, I guess. Then, um, but uh, even then, though, I had these ideas of like doing big rides. I bought panniers for it and uh, was gonna. Um, when I finished that particular project I was on in Eastern Pennsylvania, I was supposed to go back to Kansas city and I lived in um, the Omaha area. So I was going to ride home. I think it was like 250 miles. And at the time seemed absolutely insane to try to do it, but I bought all the gear or what I thought was the gear anyways. Anyways, the project went on too long and I got home in like December and I was not that adventurous to ride uh, through the Midwest in winter, 20 degrees and snow and ice and, so that, that never came to be, but, uh, I believe that same winter I moved to, I moved to Florida so then I could just ride year round. Um, and that, that began the mountain bike, uh, um, I don't know, whole lifestyle. <laughs> Everything changed once I start. I got there and I started riding on a regular basis and, um, and racing and trail building and just totally immersed myself in the, in the mountain bike community around, um, Tampa. And, uh, and that just, I mean, snowball is not the right word for it cause I was in Florida, but <laughs> snowballed from there. <laughs> um, 
a lot of people don't think of mountain biking in Florida, but uh, obviously it's not mountains, but a lot of a lot of good off-road riding there. Um, there was easily a hundred miles of trail within an hour or so drive um, in the Tampa area. So, and there's way more now, which is super cool. Um, but yeah, I just got really into the community there, and um, there's a real active club called the Swamp Club that I got into, and um, they were real fostering of you know, riding and racing and um, and I started off doing the cross country thing, the, you know, hour, hour and a half long races. And, um, that just, I was okay. I wasn't, you know, I didn't show, you know, Olympic promise or anything. Um, I was pretty okay at it, but then, um, pretty quickly I started climbing the longer races. And, uh, and at that time it was more lap races, you know, six hours, 12 hours. Mm. Um, and I got into that and then, occasional forays up into the mountains to do um longer either just fun trips or races up that way and that really uh piqued my interest i was like oh this is a whole different sort of suffering that i like and uh eventually moved up to georgia up to atlanta that kind of cut out the middleman of driving back and forth and so less drive time more ride time and uh that led into 24-hour racing, um, more lap racing, because that was the thing back then. This would be the uh, maybe 2003, four, um, and I went heavy into that, doing you know, four, five, six of those a year for the next several years until around 2010, and that changed from you know the 24-hour racing was dying and bikepacking was becoming more of a thing. I mean, it had been around for a long time, or at least the I was aware of things like Tour Divide and um, but there was a new route in, um, North Georgia, the trans North Georgia, um, that was coming into being, um, that a friend of mine had been working on. I helped do a little of the scouting, but he put tons of effort into it. And so that became a race in 2010 and that just changed absolutely everything I ever thought about what riding should be. And that should be massively long and, and huge climbs over and over again on a heavy bike. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I kind of poured myself into the trans North Georgia for the next four or five years of, um, just learning the route and learning the challenges of doing that as an ultra race. Um, and along the way, won it several times and kept resetting my record, trying to improve that time until, uh, it was 2013 that I set, um, I got, so it's a 350 mile race, uh, about 40,000 feet of climbing and finally got that down to about 39 hours and thought that was probably the best I'm ever going to do on that. And, uh, started looking around at some other, other events. Um, but also same time of, of life changes. Uh, as I listened to some of your recent podcasts, uh, I went through a divorce then, and, uh, that sort of reset some things in my life and, um, for good and bad. Um, but the good side of it was that kind of opened my eyes and, and possibilities to go start looking at doing, um, I had never actually bike packed. I'd always done ultra races. Um, and the difference being that I never brought sleeping gear. I just planned to ride straight through. And if that didn't work out, I'd cl you know, climb in a bivy sack and go to sleep for an hour or two and wake up and keep going versus actually planning to like stop and camp and eat a normal meal and, um, enjoy myself in that less than type two way. Uh, so started getting into doing some bike packing trips, you know, just, um, fun stuff with friends. Um, 
and was really uh, just blown away by how much fun it was and the crazy adventures that tend to happen. Um, like being in a, a gas station slash restaurant somewhere in South Carolina and my buddy and I are pulling in there to get some dinner and, and all of a sudden there's automatic gunfire going off across the street and not a single person in the restaurants reacting <laughs> except us. Cause we're about climbing under the table. Like what the heck's going on? And apparently that's just a normal thing behind the bar across the street. And, uh, I was like, Holy cow, <laughs> what world did we just find ourselves in? Uh, my buddy didn't want to go into the bar. So I guess we moved on from there. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wanted to go meet the other bikers, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I was just sort of smitten with the whole idea of the adventures and the, you have no idea what you're going to find once you get out there. And it's a very interactive world versus racing where I kind of keep my head down and try not to talk to people, you know, in bikepacking, you're just kind of immersed in the world and that's part of the experience, which was really cool. Yeah. It's, it's like the, um, it's almost like, I mean, it depends on how you're approaching a race or a ride. Um, but there seems to be more time in a, in a mm-hmm. bikepacking event, especially, you know, something like you just did, like whatever that, what, almost 6,000 miles. Yeah. Um, I, I did the divide last summer and I found it, um, I found the pace really quite pleasant cause I was kind mm-hmm. of the same. Like I really wanted to, you want to push your limits, but you also want to try to enjoy yourself a little bit. So yeah. you're just trying to find that balance between, you know, just you're at the edge of suffering kind of thing (laughs) and you're waking up tired every day, but it, but the adventure of it, um, and and just that day to day experience. What I tell people is it's almost like bikepacking is and bikepacking and bikepack racing. It's like, um, distilled life, right? Cause life is the same. You eat, sleep, work, repeat. You're just doing it over and over again. And then in between all that, there's trail magic, loved ones, um, highs and lows, you know, I, I, you know, you and I are, well, I'm, I'm going through a pretty big low right now, but, um, and I, and I try to remind myself, I'm trying to almost live my life in a bikepacking ethos, repeating to myself that this is only temporary, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel Yeah. for every low, I mean, there's a high, you know, all exactly. those things, right? You let yeah, me, especially, I mean, yeah. you got to remember that when you're high too. <laughs> yeah it doesn't always stay up there it doesn't either. last forever no that's for sure um there's a lot to unpack in there it's like it's funny we ha- we have similar origin origin stories because i was a network administrator for um whistler black back in the uh i think in the 2000s is when i was doing more network stuff and i was the cable guy yeah. so i was that dude no one really knew who i was i would kind of emerge from a closet after punching down cables all day right or terminating oh. or pulling cables through the ceiling or or yeah, whatever. Yeah. I really I liked it. I, I kind of liked that gig because it was very, um, um, it's a very introverted kind of gig. I think I'm a bit more of an introvert. Yeah. So I didn't really have to deal with the customers that much. You know, I can't print. I can't do this. I forgot my password. It's like, ugh, I'm just the cable guy, man. Call help desk. I'm not going to, I can't help you. <laughs> yeah. Also, when you're in a closet like that, you're, uh, you have control over like every little aspect of that world. Um, from, you know, the music sounds that you hear to the way those cables get laid up and all of that. And you get to create something, which is really cool. The downside of it is you're sitting either, you know, at best in a chair, usually <laughs> a rung of a ladder, 
you know, and yeah. you realize that your foot's been asleep for about 20 <laughs> because you haven't moved. It's funny though. It's, it's, you're so right about that. Cause you get into this, uh, you know, I learned, I learned from a really good, uh, Peter Barris. I learned from him, um, just the whole idea of, of cabling and it, and it, it sounds stupid to people who don't really, who can't relate, but it is art. Like when you're, when mm-hmm. you're, you're taking a bundle of cable and you're trying to make it like super like nice and straight lines and good bends, you know, and the way it bends into the, into the patch panel in the back, you know, it's, it's, it takes a lot of thoughtfulness to make it kind of nice, especially yeah. when you go in and you're repairing some, like I've, the place I work now, I don't do it there, but I go into the back, into the back phone room and I'm just like, Oh my God. Oh my God. I just, there's just crap everywhere and wires yeah. hanging. It drives me crazy. So it's interesting. We have kind of a similar origin story and I, and I can also relate to the, the idea of, I feel the same way how, you know, when I, when I would, when I used to go mountain biking, it would be like full gas for an hour and a half. You'd go out and you just rip single track as hard as you could. And, um, and then I feel like as I discovered longer distances, mountain biking's changed a lot for me. It's more about how far you can go, how much stuff you can see, you yeah. know, like, and, 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 it, and, and the way bike packing translates to, to, um, even just short trail rides. Like I, I kind of laugh at people, they're going for an hour and a half trail ride and they've got three liters of water in their backpack and I've got <laughs> one bottle and my filter. And it's just yeah. like, well, I got a filter. I don't need to carry three liters. I'll just go pull it from that cow pool over there. I don't care. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I use two one liter bottles for the entirety of the Eastern divide trail. Wow. That's great. I think the East, there's lots of water, right? There is. There yeah. is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you filter it. Um, I actually went, so, uh, I got, um, I got some most likely bad water somewhere Mm -hmm. in, in Newfoundland. Um, that resulted in a hospital day later on in in Nova Scotia. And, um, so I was a little gun shy about filtering for a long time. And I think I went from Nova Scotia to North Carolina without filtering water, um, and only carrying the, the two liters. So I got, very resourceful in finding fresh water and a lot of that was just being gun shy about filtering um what do you think happened did you uh, fail or it it possibly um it could be that you know i used that filter and then put it away for several months and there was you know didn't rinse it out or whatever you know and there was Mm. something lingering in it and i i got i got that through the filter or i dripped some water out or it also could have easily just been one of the restaurants that I went to, mm. you know, and, and got some bad food, but it's, it's so hard to pinpoint it. And I didn't, uh, I didn't do a culture or anything like that when I was in the hospital. So I don't even know what it was. Um, but the antibiotics I got cleared it up pretty quickly. And I was, I was, you know, I went from that zero day to, I think like 95 the next day, 95 miles the next day and like 130 the next day. So I was like, all right, I think I'm, I think I cleared that up. <laughs> yeah. It's a bummer. I had to go to the hospital. I was always worried on the divide if I had to go to a hospital just because, you know, we're, we're pretty privileged in Canada <clears throat> to have free healthcare. Right. I can just walk into the hospital whenever I want and get yeah. whatever I if, need. If you're Canadian, <laughs> if you're Canadian and that's my worry is like, so how was that? I'm always wondering how that experience was for you. Like, was it an insurance nightmare or how did it work? Um, 
that reminds me, I need to look and see if they actually sent me a bill. <laughs> you better check that out. <laughs> that didn't occur to me. Uh, I don't think I've seen it, so that's interesting. Um, the It was kind of the most – it was like such an awful experience. You come into a hospital in the U.S. and they'll, sure, come on in, and then they'll send you this outrageous bill like two months later that – just makes no sense. Like yeah. the numbers make no, they're so huge. I walked in there and I was like, listen, you know, I don't have insurance up here. So, um, you know, what's this going to look like? And they basically hand me a menu and they say, you know, this it's, you know, whatever, $800 to, to basically walk in the door. And if we need to Whoa. do, you're probably going to need IV. So it's going to be, you know, 150 for that. And then, you know, this charge and that charge. And it was like, okay, $1,200 that's worth, you know, me getting rid of whatever this is and uh and they're like okay we'll just take a credit card and um so they go about doing their business and, and get me sorted out and then on the way out they're like we can't actually we don't have any way to process a credit card so um don't worry about it we're, eh? <laughs> yeah we're just gonna send you a bill so take care <laughs> and that was that wow still though that that blows me away that just to walk in the door and enter the system costs 800 bucks it's like it it was a um I think it was more because it was an actual hospital versus like a like an urgent care kind of mm. thing and just where I was that was the only option they they had the one hospital um probably the regional hospital and it was I don't know maybe 40 or 50 miles um to get to a town that would have some urgent care um you know like a smaller cheaper option which was probably really what I needed I didn't need a full on hospital um, but I couldn't get there. Uh, there was no shuttle or any sort of transportation that I could figure out in my sort of dehydrated <laughs> half mental <laughs> yeah. state brain to, to sort out. So just going to the hospital was, ended up being the thing. Um, and some of that was just, uh, you know, I probably could have sorted it out after another day or two, but I really wanted to, to not do that. Um, I'd already had a short day heading into that town and then stayed the night. And then they, they asked me to stop and rest, which I was okay with that day, but I wasn't going to sit still the next day if, if things were better. Uh, and they were, so it, it was sort of a, uh, a cost benefit <laughs> concept in my head. I was like, yeah, this is expensive, but you know, so it's just sitting here for another day. Yeah, and have you ever had problem uh, um, gastrointestinal issues on any of the events you've ever done? No, um, it's good. Luckily, uh, this is a very common problem with oh, I know, know. right? And and like what I did Tour Divide in 2017, and I was uh, the first day or two, I'm filtering water, and then someone else would come by and just throw their bottle under that same waterfall, put a cap on it, and ride away, and I'm like. I kept seeing people do this, so I started doing it until we got down into Montana and mm. the lower lands, you know, where there's cows and whatnot around. Mm. And I was like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I, um, I, I've done that on trips in Canada, and pretty confidently, um, especially up high, it, it had never really uh, occurred to me. But I did have some mild intestinal. It, it, it's just there could be a dead elk right laying in the sure. laying in the creek up creek, right? So you're, and, you're you have to. It's a calculated risk, I think, still. Yeah. And in, in Newfoundland, um, there's beavers everywhere. Oh, right. And, um, so there was that, so I was filtering and then, uh, 
the night I think I actually it, my my best guess that I I probably got the bad water as uh, I was in um, this town of Cornerbrook, and um, as I kept finding in Newfoundland on on a if you don't book ahead on a Saturday, mm-hmm. um, Friday or Saturday, you're you're not getting a room. Mm-hmm. Um, just there's so many people on the island at that you know in in August because it's going to be the peak weather and everybody's there for all the reasons family visits and business and whatever nobody wants to go in february and um not in the east (laughs) so i didn't book ahead that night and uh i wasn't able to get a room so finally at like 10 30 i gave up and and uh i would had been just hanging out at a restaurant kind of calling around to the hotels over and over again trying to i really wanted a room but uh so i rode on and got maybe 10 miles out of town and i decided i found a spot and there's a um a pretty good flowing creek next to it and um it's a little bit off the road so i don't have to worry too much about someone driving by or anything during the night and uh and so the first thing i did was um get my filter out and go fill up some bottles and then i go back across the road and it's you know maybe um you know 20 30 feet away from the road and i start setting up my pull out my tent and start setting up and uh I guess right before I pull out my tent, I'm like knocking rocks and sticks and whatever out you know, in my spot where I'm going to set up. So I'm not laying on that. And I go to what I grab, what I think is really just a leaf. Um, and of course it's, you know, it's dark now and it's actually a rib bone. I was like, oh crap. <laughs> All right. Maybe I'm not going to camp right here, but I didn't think to like dump that water and, uh, and move upstream and refill. And, uh, so it could be that it could, nothing to do with that i have no idea yeah it's it's luck of the draw man it's and and yeah you're lucky you kind of got it done and out of the way (laughs) early on (laughs) there was that um and like yeah i mean and again after that whole episode i was very gun shy about about filtering um and i did have iodine tablets as well so um my my plan was that if i really did need to filter i was going to filter and use the iodine tablets uh, together, um, but it didn't come up again. And then I replaced my filter, uh, later on. And, uh, just before I went into North Carolina. So when I did finally filter again, I felt a bit more confident because I had a brand new filter. Yeah. And, so uh, let's, let's go back a little bit. So yeah, you, you discovered the, uh, uh, when did you discover the, the EDT, the Eastern divide trail? Um, probably t- two, three years ago, something like that. Um, not, I don't have a very clear timeline on that, but, uh, you know, of course I live here in the East, Southeast, um, and, uh, several of the collaborators, um, I am friends with, you know, we're all in the bikepacking world. And, um, so, and several chunks of the route have been around for years, you know, um, the TNGA came into being, end of 2009 or 10, something like that. And the Florida divide has been around for, um, maybe a little less than that. And so not too, I think it was end of 2017, the Southern Highlands route came out and that was kind of a, uh, a bit of in Alabama called the skyway. And then you have trans North Georgia, this Western North Carolina traverse and then up into Virginia. Um, and that was kind of the first time I had a, a look at, just how big and long and hard that all that could be. Um, and that what I want to say it was like 1200 miles and it was, you know, a couple hundred thousand feet of climbing. Um, 
and so I was looking at that, and but I was still recovering from Tour Divide. Kind of uh, physically, I had uh, had a lot of issues in my feet and, and calves from all the hike a bike, and um, and mentally, of course, there's that piece. But uh, and then financially, it's such a uh, a hit. <laughs> so expensive. Um, so expensive. So it was kind of in the back of my mind, like that would be a pretty cool thing to do. And it's right here in my backyard and it's, you know, the South is, um, I don't know if it's any cheaper to be honest, but just my travel would be cheaper. Um, and, uh, so it was just kind of there lingering. And then fast forward a couple of years and I started hearing about the Eastern divide and what that might be. And, and it was still kind of up in the air, whether it would be just in the U S or they would continue on into Canada and what all that might look like. And I mean, all the way up until the day I landed in St. John's to actually start this thing, it was still in flux. So, um, I actually scouted Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. Uh, so I guess it was still in flux even when I was done with it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it just kind of started coming up and, and, it really caught my attention at the end of 2020, um, which I've got cabin fever like everybody else yeah. uh, for, for all the COVID reasons. And um, I was actually on my way to do a podcast with a friend of mine up in North Georgia. Um, and I knew he was going to ask me about like, what, what was my next adventure going to be? And I kind of had all that going on in my head anyways, trying to figure out what that was. And I made a phone call to uh, Brett Davidson, who's sort of the, I'll say he's the mastermind behind the original idea of linking everything together for the Eastern divide. And I was like, Hey, what do you think about doing a full run on that? Like next year, do you think it's going to be ready? And he's, he says, oh, yeah, no problem. And, of course, he's always very positive that way, right? And I had no idea what any of these challenges would be. So um, so that kind of – that was the first time that it was voiced that actually I kind of want to do this and we'll figure it out. And, uh, uh, I mean, fast forward to the beginning of 2021 and, you know, I start looking at the maps and hearing what's actually going on and talking to Logan at bikepacking.com and there's massive chunks up in that Northeast corner that are not completed. And, um, they don't know exactly what that route is, but he thought pretty confidently by the end of the year, it'd be sorted out. So I just started marching forward like it was going to be done. And, uh, and even towards the end of 21, um, I was still, Oh yeah, someone's going to be able to get up there and scout in the early spring before you head up there. No problem. So I just kept marching forward like everything was going to be fine. Um, the what ended up happening was nobody went and scouted those sections. There was no no local um, in the area that sort of Logan had made contact with to to go do such things. So uh, it was as I was landing, I was getting these GPS files of. Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. Um, so I had no beta on any of that. And then and Maine was still sort of in flux. Um, and I think even as I was leaving Newfoundland, I got updated maps. So it was just all sort of a constant, endless flux of, of, of maps and quickly get this one onto your, your GPS and, and, and your phone so that you can try to navigate this and see what happens. Um, so it was, it was a fun project in that regard because it, unlike Tour Divide, where you can just go to the internet and find, you know, 
I won't say endless amounts of stories, but hundreds of people's stories, um, and, and books about people's stories and maps and resupply lists and, and, you know, all this beta on where the hard parts are going to be and, and, you know, you you avoid the bannock road when it's when it's raining real hard or if it's dry you, you got to make a run for it because the rain might come whatever things like that where on this route i had none of it and i um you know outside of the parts of of the south that i i knew um rather intimately um it's just that whole i mean thousands of miles of this route that were just chunks of unknown um which scared the heck out of me i mean uh but that was kind of what I wanted. I mean, if I'm going to go do this and spend the time doing it. I do want it to be a real challenge. And, um, I don't know. I, it's probably part of that being locked up for a year, <laughs> 2020, you know, and not having the challenges. And I was just itching for something big. And this was, I couldn't find anything bigger than this. Sometimes I think we mix uh, fear and excitement. I think it's easy to, to feel those emotions inside. And you're like, because mm-hmm. uh, I found, you know, I feel like the last few years of me leading up to the divide have been just kind of like shorter races, longer, longer, just building up. And then I yo-yoed something last year and then it kind of just built up my experience. So when the tour divide happened leading up to right before you get on the bike, it's like, I I didn't feel fear. I just felt this like anticipation and this excitement, but you are right. It's like, there's, there is so much information out there, you know, I was, Oh, there is. Yeah, for sure. And, but going into tour divide, I was, I was somewhat fearful. Um, but once I was on the start line, it was all just anticipation, um, excitement, ready to be into it and see what happens. Um, and, but the whole feel of that was very different because I'm standing there with almost 200 other people doing the exact same thing. Um, ITTs feel different. Like there's oh, a, yeah. when you're standing there and you're like, you're looking at your watch. Okay. Well, I said, I'm going to start at eight and well, it's eight o'clock. So bye everybody. Yeah, bye. Nobody. The, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, and the excitement's diminished because I'm, I'm there alone. You know, nobody, nobody, uh, you know, I rolled out of my Airbnb and all right, race begins. This is it. And no one, no one around you in your vicinity has any idea what you're just yeah. about to do. Right. And, uh, Actually, my friend um, who dropped me off at the airport to go up to uh, up to Canada, up to St. John's, and um, and he made some comment on the way out, you know, just like, "Hey, man, take take a deep breath. You're gonna be fine." He's like, he could just see the nervousness. You know, I was just so so worried about everything. And there's just so many unknowns, and there's so many ways to screw it up and and make the mistakes. And in in a lot of ways, I made all the mistakes. Um, I mean, it was an endless string of failures over and over again, which was either uh, no. We gotta we gotta reframe that right now. You either <laughs> we you either succeed or you learn. Fair enough, right? Fair enough. I, I'm trying to reframe failure in that way because it's like even if you didn't finish it, you 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 learn something, and then when you go back to do it again, sure, you, you will do it well, again. That, you know? Yes, exactly. And that was maybe I'm trying to take. Uh, reclaim the word failure and yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to have a negative connotation. No, no. <laughs> it just does though, man. It just, it sounds, it, it just, it strikes a, a chord in me, especially with the way things have been going for me lately. Failure is just like, don't like that word. No, it is. You're right. It's, we learn more from those moments than, 
than we do from those, the, especially the easy successes. Like, um, and with the Eastern Divide, it wasn't the same problem popping up over every day was something absolutely new from navigation issues to the GI issues to uh, not understanding how Canada is going to function, especially in the summer and how overrun, you know, all the restaurants, everything's super slow because everything's understaffed because all the reasons things are understaffed and just trying to learn all of this on the fly um, on top of not having any beta about resupply or anything like that. I'm just figuring that on fly as well. So it's just it was so right to the edge of overwhelming just over and over and over again. And I just have to sit down each night and go, okay, what did I learn today that I'm not going to do tomorrow? That's a good exercise and, actually is to reflect, to reflect back on the day and, 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 uh, list either mentally or even, you know, physically list the successes and, and, things you've learned throughout the day yeah. that day and, and try to apply them forward. I guess sort of, sort of in the lines of the, the, the you know, doing your gratitude list kind mm-hmm. of exercise, but it was more like, all right, so what did I, you know, what did I screw up today that I, I'm not going to do that tomorrow? Yeah. And actually the yeah. one thing I found when I was, I was doing a little bit of research was like that you lost your bike. Did the the airline lose your bike? They did. Oh, um, God, that's the worst. I think, I think it's actually um, in Toronto and, um, to be honest, that barely even phased me. Yeah. I went up. So when I did tour divide, you had to take your, your luggage from the carousel, go through customs and then put it back on a carousel to get on to the connecting flight. Right. Um, I didn't know that they didn't transfer your luggage for you between connections at that time. They did not. Oh, bummer. Um, so as you're coming into the country, um, coming through customs in Toronto, um, they did not, and you had to carry it all through, but that wasn't, um, explicitly explained to, to me. And so I, I go through customs with my backpack and that's it. And, uh, and I get, um, over to Calgary and I'm like, uh, where's my luggage? And they're like, well, did you put it on the carousel in Toronto? And I'm like, no. Nobody said I needed to do that. Like, how does my luggage not get to where I'm going? And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll try to find it for you and, and, and deliver it. And so I was, you know, in Calgary freaking out because I didn't have my bike. Oh, my God. Um, and I had a few days. So when I get to St. John's and they don't have my bike, I'm like, all right, well, this is just par for the course, I guess. Though I, it wasn't my fault this time. It just got held up in customs. Right. Did, did um, you change airlines on the divide? Did you go from, like, one airline to another? Um. So when you, I, I took Delta cause I was flying out of Atlanta and it's just super easy to take Delta. Yeah. Um, but changes from Delta to WestJet, which is basically the same company, but they kind of oh, act like two companies. Interesting. I can see that um, being an issue because I mean, when I flew back from, cause I, I mean, Banff is just like an hour and a half drive away from me. So it wasn't a big deal to get to the start. <laughs> right. But getting back, I had a buddy pick me up and take me to El Paso, but I had, uh, I can't remember what I took American. I think it was American Airlines, but I took it right right into Calgary. So, yeah, it never would have occurred to me to to go and wait for my luggage. Yeah, in um, Denver. No, where did we? Where did I stop? And I've done other international flights like that where it's not. Yeah, I thought they would just follow you. Take my luggage, you know, a hundred yards this way and drop it off. Yeah, I know. To to get back on the plane, it just seemed very inefficient. But then again they lost my luggage anyways going into St. John. So I don't know what's more efficient or not. 
still though like that's like yeah i was i was worried about that too with my bike the only thing that happened to my bike coming back is my um my chain ring was wrecked i didn't i guess i didn't i didn't pad it i I should have had like a block to put under it or something like that but uh no they wrecked my chain ring dropping it and whatever they at least it's on the way back yeah and Um, i I wasn't riding after that much anyway so (laughs) it didn't really matter too much fair enough (laughs) Yeah. Now the only hangup I had, um, in St. John's was, uh, I, I got a hotel room right next to the airport, which was planned anyways. And, um, and so I stayed the night there. I expected, you know, a call at some point to say, Hey, we found your bike and, and we'll bring it to you. And, uh, so they, of course the way phones work now, it's not a known number. So it goes straight to voicemail. I never heard it. They leave me a message and say, Hey, we've got your, your bike here at, at security and um, just give us a call back and we can bring it to you. Well, there's, it's an unlisted number. There's no way to call back. So I get myself all together back to the airport with a shuttle. And then um, I'm standing there trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I'm just going to build the bike right here. We'll see what happens. And uh, I think if I did that, like in the Atlanta airport, security would have been all over me. Really? Um, and, uh, you know, maybe they would have asked me to take it outside or something. Um, just, it's such a busy airport and uh, I'm sure they just, they don't want to dedicate someone to stand there and make sure I'm not doing something I shouldn't be doing. Where in Newfoundland, the, the security person came by, started asking me what I was doing. Like, oh, where are you going? What are you, what are you riding? And they would move on. And then someone else would ask me about it. And everybody was of course super friendly about it. And eventually it took me, I don't know, an hour to sort of get it all together. And um, security person was like, oh, no, we'll get maintenance over here to take care of that box for you. And then she watched my bike for a minute while I went and used the bathroom so that I could jump on my bike and ride away. It was <laughs> totally different experience than what I expected. I had a great experience in the States overall. Um, but, yeah, Canada is awesome. Like, Canada is just so, like, I, I think that because of all the things that have been going on in the States over the last handful of years, I just think security is just... I think they're just switched on more maybe. I mean, yeah. we, we have issues in Canada as well, but our, you know, our population's less, um, and, you know, regulations around certain things are a little, little tighter, like, like firearms for instance. So, um, but you know, I, I remember when I went into the States, I had, I had the same, um, oh, I don't know. I think I carried a little bit of fear, you know, and, and, and a lot of people said, oh, you're riding the Tour Divide. You're going to be going through the States. Oh, you better, you know, be safe and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, <laughs> and, my- and once I got down there, all I experienced was like, as soon as, and it's funny too, I've said this on the podcast, there's these Im- imaginary lines in the sand, right? So there's an imaginary line in the sand. You you, you come out of is it Galton Pass and then you're, you're mm-hmm. into, uh, into Montana. What I, my analogy is Canada was a grizzly bear. It just chewed you up and just like spit you into Montana, right? Just like, ah, ah, and then you're into Montana. It's beautiful and rolling hills and oh God. But, but even you cross that border, the accents change, the attitudes change. It's just mm-hmm. so interesting. Cause if you go to Fernie, which is like what an hour from the border sure, and people are like, they're, you know, they're just Canadians, right? They've got the Canadian <laughs> accent out out in the boot out in the boot you know whatever and then you go across a border and then now there's this there's this different twang to the to the accent sure. and it's just a line in the sand but even even as soon as i cross the border it's like oh hey hun what can i get you now darling and i had nothing but that all the way to the border just yeah. for the most part other than butte like we got hassled in butte a little bit but um 
uh, uh, the whole way down, it was just curiosity and trail magic and um, just interest and welcoming people. Oh, stay here, stay there. Here, I'll leave my door open and you can stay there. And it's just like, yeah. you know, it, 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 we're so um, we're so saturated in media, right? And and this everything's just amplified coming out of the states about how divisive and dangerous and whatever it is. But as soon as you, 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 you immerse yourself into it, it's not that way. It's really not. I just think the media is making it look that way. That's, that's my comment anyway. Oh, the, uh, yeah. From the media standpoint, the fear sells. I mean, it's just so much, you, you get people's attention so much more over fear versus not. Totally. Yeah, I noticed. Could you I go, imagine the news if it was actually full of all the really cool, good things that were happening? Like, you know, I think it so would, and I, so uh, broke their arm, and their neighbor brought them a pie. Like, that's never <laughs> news, right? <laughs> you know, they but, cooked for them for a week. But like, I wish but, there, I wish there was more of that because that is happening. There are great yeah, things. There's like what you did, raising all this money, right? There's, there's all the, there are all these things happening in Canada and the U.S. Um, and you know, I don't have broadcast television in my house, but. Uh, during the summer went to, I guess they're my ex-in-laws now and they have TV and I'm watching TV there. And it's just like, you watch the news and, and like five o'clock news, I didn't really want my kids to watch it because they're talking about like, you know, shootings happen in Canada as well. You know, this guy got shot. There was gang violence. There was this crazy accident on the highway. Um, and a couple, couple times when I was in the States, I would be in a gas station in New Mexico somewhere, this, this old dude on a mask was helping me out, but he was in his bar, which is adjacent to the gas station. I had a bit of a chat with him, but he had a screen like his, uh, probably CNN on or whatever, just constant news. And the way it's broadcast, it's so, uh, just short snippets and lots of flashing and tickers going by and da, 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 da. it's just like this, this, this staccato, um, information delivery. And, and it's so, captivating you know to look at and the colors and the beautiful people right like the 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 man and the woman who are broadcasting news are just like these stunningly beautiful tanned well-dressed groomed people you can't you almost can't turn away it's it's an interesting yeah it's interesting to me yeah so that yeah and well, it, i'm glad you had a great canadian experience that's awesome oh so many great canadian experiences <laughs> that's great um tell me about some of the trail magic you experienced when you were on route um, the very first actually was, um, in Newfoundland, which I was not expecting, uh, much there. Um, not so much like not from people, but, um, but this guy and his son, um, met me on route and I think it was like just the second day, maybe it was the third day. Um, you know, with like Gatorade and a banana and they're like, Oh, we saw the article on bikepacking.com and checked out the route and saw you were coming, you know, within, uh, they would have said kilometers of the house. Um, and so they just, they're out there, you know, ringing a bell and, and, and hanging out. And I, had, I was kind of blown away by it because I don't know anybody in Newfoundland and, and it just kind of shocked me that anybody would even know about what I was doing and, and care enough to come out. Um, but even, on my plane ride into St. John's, uh, this guy sitting next to me was telling me about this, uh, 
boat he had just bought. He's got this property on the water. So I think everybody has property on the water in Newfoundland. But, um, and showed him the route. He's like, oh yeah, you're just like 10 minutes drive from the route. So here's my number when you, when you go through that area, if it works out, you know, give me a call. We'll put you up for the night, and, uh, you know, have dinner, whatever. And, uh, it didn't work out, but it was just, I mean, just random strangers are like, here's my phone number. Give me a call. Leave, you know, like you said, leave the door open kind of thing. And, um, and that was right from the get go. And that, that kind of continued on. Um, I was in, uh, on the Bay of Fundy in, in New Brunswick and there's this really cool covered bridge and just beautiful coastline thing. And I'm there taking some pictures and, um, and this guy, Tom, um, I asked him to take a picture of me in front of the, the covered bridge. And, um, and then we get chatting for, I mean, no more than maybe five minutes. He's kind of asking me where I'm headed and he's like, Oh, I got a son in, I think it was Vermont. Maybe it was New Hampshire. Um, and we exchanged numbers and then he kind of randomly texts me here and there just sort of asking about progress and whatnot and, uh, just keeping in touch. And then, um, I think as I got into Maine, he's like, would it be all right if I, um, got you a room and, uh, I forget what town it is. It's near, near Mount Washington and, and, um, New Hampshire. It's a very expensive area. So it really worked out well. Um, but he went ahead and booked me a room. Um, it's kind of a hiker hostel kind of setup, but it was still attached to this nice resort. Um, and just, yeah, I mean, just random strangers that I talked to for just a few minutes are super into what I'm doing and, and, and willing to one, invest the time to keep up with it and, and to go out of their way to, to try to help figure out accommodations for me. Um, that's just, I mean, I could probably spend the next two hours just filling stories of, of, of that kind of thing. Um, I mean, rolling into, uh, St. Martin's, uh, in Newfoundland as well. I think that was actually later that same day. Um, and this couple next to me, see me setting up my tent and, uh, and he said, you know, if you need a fire, come over and help yourself. And if we go to bed, help yourself to the wood. And so I got over there and start telling stories. Next thing you know, she's making me, uh, hot dogs and, and pulling stuff out of the cooler and, and warming them up for me. Um, I learned what octodogs are. If you ever heard of this i have not heard of an octodog yeah this is sort of little holder and they split the ends of the hot dog four ways so it's got these eight little arms hanging out stick it over the fire and so instead of like crusty edges of the the hot dog and kind of not cooked it all in the middle it kind of cooks the whole hot dog through real quick there you go. i must have had six of those and i mean I didn't even realize as I started telling either of those stories that they both happen in the same day. Um, and that was very much, I mean, it happened in the U S but just in Canada, it just seemed like everybody was one super interested in what I'm doing and two trying to figure out a way to be, to be helpful. Um, and I probably needed more help in Canada as well. It was just, it was rugged and the weather was not great. And, um, I don't think mud season ever ended. Um, this summer, I think it just went right from, from one mud season to the, to the winter. Um, so it, I had a hard time in there, um, covering the ground and, and throwing the GI issues and all the things that just made everything so much slower and harder in Canada. Um, so I, I probably leaned on people a little more than I, than I needed to in the U S as well. But, uh, and not to say that people were not friendly in the U S it's just, 
uh, it's hard to describe how much more friendly people were. Oh, interesting. In yeah, that's interesting. I think, I think as I've, I've recommended this book before to, to my American friends is, uh, uh, Mike Myers. He wrote, uh, Canada. It's just called Canada. And it just explains a lot about, you know, the, the background of Canada and, and I don't, we, we tend to be very friendly and helpful, I think, especially in the in the um, more rural areas. You're going to get that a sure. little bit more than the city, I think. I mean, and that stands anywhere, I think, in the world. But uh, no, I'm super stoked that you had a good experience. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, what about some of the, your like lows? Like, obviously, the GI is pretty gnarly. Um, yeah, I thought that was the end of the the ride. Um, oh wow, that bad, hey. Yeah, so I, um, as I got into Nova Scotia, it was it was already happening. As I, I got stuck in Newfoundland for a couple of days, I couldn't get the ferry off, and so then um, the day before I'm supposed to take off, I wake up, you know, it's like stomach cramps, and then all the um, all the things that follow that, um, and so that continued on for the next like four days. But I was still trying to do the big miles, and I was um, I had intended and, um, and to a degree logistically, I kind of had to, to get to the hotels. And at that point I needed the hotels. I needed, mm. I needed close proximity to a bathroom yeah. is what I needed. Um, and so I got, um, in Nova Scotia is kind of split in two. So I crossed over, um, the waterway there and, um, headed into uh this little town of um Guysboro and another navigation issue which was was a common theme especially in Nova Scotia where um it's a it's a road on paper but it's um what it really is a snowmobile track and so half the year is just water uh, and then it freezes up and it can be a snowmobile track so you know I'm like shoes off just walking through this marsh for you know a mile and a half or so and it's all super slow going because of that. And so I'd say it took me like six hours to do like 35 miles and I get in this town. So I go get some food and I probably ate the absolute wrong things, which was, you know, like lasagna, I think it was, you know, real acidic tomato paste oh, yeah, yeah. in a salad. So roughage on top of it. And, um, I basically couldn't leave that restaurant. Um, you know, I just, I was, kind of scared of what the consequences would be of, of leaving that restaurant in their bathroom. Um, so eventually that calmed down. Um, I, I mean like probably an hour and a half later, I'm sure the staff was starting to wonder like, is this, what's this guy doing? And why, why is he never going to leave? And, uh, so I finally, um, I, of course I had some time on my hands in between. So I'm looking up like my options. There's the one hood hospital and there's one hotel. So I go to the hotel and I kind of hung out in front of it for a while because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but it's a good 90, 95 miles, um, to new Glasgow. So, and with nothing in between as far as hotels and accommodation of any sort. Um, so I just lingered for a while before I finally decided to get the room and then go to the hospital the next morning and I get in there and I'm feeling better, but I didn't eat anything the night before. Um, and, you know, I drank a lot of water and, and I thought I was hydrated. Um, so when I get in there, they finally get me checked in and I get the menu of services and um, decide I'm going to, you know, I'll go ahead and pay for all this. So they got me in a chair and they they're, they draw some blood and then they're going to put the catheter in my arm to do the IV. And my veins are not very hard to find. 
um, you know, especially now that I'm whatever, 10 days into doing this ride, my veins are very, I'm very vascular at this point. And, um, and she she squeezes on the vein and goes to put the catheter and it blows right through, um, which is usually a sign that you're very dehydrated. Um, and so she pulls that out, pops the, um, tourniquet off my arm and that blood pressure change, that little blood pressure change right there just sent me over the edge and my eyes are rolling back in my head and the room's real bright and my head's spinning and I'm flush with sweat and I'm super hot. And, um, yeah, yeah, super hot. And, um, and all of a sudden everybody's in there, the doctors in there and more nurses. Like this is a tiny little room. They were trying to, they're very, they were very worried about COVID. So they had me very isolated at this point, but all of a sudden they don't care about that. This guy's, they're not sure where I'm headed at this point. Yeah. And, um, so they bring me some, you know, cold compress things for my forehead and whatnot. And, um, when I, she, she had asked me right before the episode, do you think you're real, you know, how dehydrated do you think you are? And I was like, I think I'm okay. You know, I'd done like 110 miles a day before I was cruising along just fine this morning. Um, except for the marsh. Um, it's just, you know, my stomach's not right. And she's like, okay, well, we're going to go ahead and put one liter in there and see what happens. Well, one turned into three. Um, and, and they got me some antibiotics and, and my, uh, you know, basically they got, they got me into a bed and you know, brought me food and, and water and coffee and, um, I'm drinking water and taking the IVs all at the same time. And I'm still not ready to even pee at this point. Like, okay, I guess I was pretty dehydrated. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially if you're vomiting it all up, right? You're just constantly, was it out both ends? That was just diarrhea. too much information. Oh, it was just no, out that just end. Di- yeah. Luckily I wasn't vomiting. <laughs> yeah, man, that you dehydrate fast when that happens. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and like I said, it'd been going on for four or five days at this oh, point fuck. on top of, I don't know how many, you know, 250, 300 miles of riding. That's the worst man, especially dealing with your chamois and just ha- having to clean up all the time. Like how many packs of wipes did you go through? Oh, a lot. <laughs> like just a lot. Brutal. brutal. It's basically just linger at the hotel waiting for the emodium to sort of kick in. And I guess whatever I had run through my system oh. and, and then go ride for, you know, 10, 12 hours and, uh, hope for the best in between. <laughs> oh my gosh. And that, that can be really dangerous too. You can get into like yeah. ca- cardiac events too, if you're dehydrated that much and you're trying to push the limits and which was why I was finally like, okay, yeah. I, I can't keep trying to, to outrun this. That's not going to happen. So, so um, despite being in Canada and getting the red carpet treatment, that's probably one of your lowest lows. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's, um, I mean the highs of the people were super cool, yeah. but the lows were, I mean, it's, it's very rugged. The The weather in the Maritimes is just really unpredictable yeah. and, and, you know, it's either beautiful and sunny or cold and raining. Um, and, uh, some of the roads were fantastic and a lot of them were just absolutely horrid right. and slow going and, and not existent in, in spots. So it was, yeah, it was very challenging, especially Nova Scotia. I often say that, and you know, someone with your background, obviously, um, with your experience and your physicality, I'm sure wasn't really an issue during this ride. Um, I often think that the mental portion of these attempts are like they're paramount to stay in in a positive mental space, so you can pers- oh, yeah. persevere every day. How were you mentally throughout this whole thing? Um. 
pretty pretty good. I mean, there's always moments where you're just like, why am I doing this? This is so dumb. <laughs> why am I putting myself through this? Um, but you know, my my reasons um, were many, and some some by design, some just by the nature of who I am, of wanting that adventure and and the big challenge and the ride, and you know, remembering I'm put myself in this situation. This wasn't this wasn't thrust upon me. Um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a Ukrainian where wars come to me, you know I mean? And you have to persevere through that. It's, I chose to be out here and do this thing. This is a privilege to be out here and do this thing. And I had to remind myself a few times when I got a little whiny about it, <laughs> but also the, um, you know, and by design, the, the fundraising aspect of it. So I, um, was raising money for the Georgia cycling association, which is this youth cycling organization, um, that we have over in Georgia that I've been involved with for, Eight, eight or nine years. I mean, from the very beginning of it, um, and it's middle through high school kids. Um, we've got like twelve, fifteen hundred kids involved now, and and maybe half that many coaches. It's pretty, well, maybe a quarter of that many coaches. Um, and you've got all these. Uh, and now being nine years into it, I work with some of the the young adults that have come out of that that league, and I they're customers of mine, and they're. Um, they're still in the sport and now they're kind of getting to this age where they can come back and contribute and, and be part of it. And uh, um, so there's kind of this full circle thing going on. And I just have a lot of um, love and respect for that, that organization be, because I think they're doing amazing things of, of introducing kids to, to bikes and, and helping them have that as a lifelong sport. Um, I can run into a lot of the soccer players that I, I played with in high school and they are not playing soccer anymore, you know, but with cyclists, you know, you, you tend to get into it and stay in it for a long time, which is really cool. Anyways, I was fundraising for them. Um, and we did a pledge per mile kind of thing and that, uh, worked out really well One, it gets people engaged, but it, it's a big piece of my motivation is, yeah, I can quit today, but that means there's 4,000 miles of this route that, that we're not raising money for. Yeah, it's a good motivator, right? Because you're riding for yeah. the kids, basically. Yeah, so, and yeah. It, it, it puts it outside of myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if it was all just, I'm doing this for me, 100% me, um, it's so much easier to quit because I can, inside my head, reconcile, uh, you know, it, that was hard and you have legitimately had a reason to quit. Like, I mean, you're, you're, you've got five days of diarrhea and you're in the hospital. Of course you're going to quit. That makes sense. But when it's outside of me, then it's so much easier for me to go, well, no, let me, let me push on another day. I'll get, I'll get some sleep and we'll just see how tomorrow goes. And, uh, and you know, I did that for basically two and a half months of, we'll just get some sleep and see how tomorrow goes. Yeah. So it gets, yeah, it was, and, and I know that about myself. Um, so I definitely wanted that to be a piece of what this ride was going to be about. Um, and at the same time, if I can raise money for a really great organization, then it's a it's a win-win for everybody you had said something before about some of these kids are now your customers what do you mean by that like do you do you so, work for the board specifically um the board of directors is not a paid position um right. that's a that totally volunteered no i'm a um i'm a bike fitter okay <clears throat> cool and, yeah, so i work in a couple of different bike shops um and in georgia uh be free flight bicycles and um so several of my coworkers and and then a lot of my clients are either currently in in GCA or have come out of that organization. Um, 
so yeah oh cool so that's 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 cool that you do that that is that a like um um you know is that your main gig is uh, yeah that's, traveling around that, doing bike that's fits? the full-time that's the full-time um cool. gig so i um at the beginning you asked me like where are you at probably asking more like where do you live um and i'm between birmingham and and atlanta um pretty much weekly so right. i have a shop over here at bob's bikes in, in birmingham um, that I work with and, and then that one over there and, and Atlanta free flight. And, uh, so I'll just set up a, you know, basically a week's worth of work and, and go and do it. And then, uh, maybe stick around for a day or two and ride depending on what's going on on either end. Um, and then come back here, um, to Birmingham where I am today. Um, my girlfriend and her, uh, I guess one daughter, the other's off to college now, um, live. So kind of back and forth for family things as well, which is fun. It's cool to hear that you, um, you know, you, you, you went into that, you, you came from this career of like, you know, fairly, fairly, you know, blue collar doing cabling, you know, whatever. And then you, you followed your path into something that you're more passionate about and you've, you've, you've made a living out of that, which is, I think it's awesome. Thank you. Um, and that, yeah, that was, uh, not always easy. Um, in, in the regards so that there's not a, you know, financially the bike world is not not the place to go get rich. Um, if I had stayed in it, I'd probably be doing a lot better financially, but I have way better stories. I hear that. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that, man. Um, yeah, quit quitting your, your cushy it job when you're 30 to go race bikes for a living is the worst financial decision. uh, (laughs) I think anybody could make, but I have way better stories for it and, uh, and eventually figured out how to make it work. It's like that cost. It's, it's like, what does what does doing a certain okay doing a certain thing makes you a certain amount of money? But what is the cost sure. of doing that, right? And if it's costing, um, you know, your your happiness, your contentment, your fulfillment, your your it it's not giving you meaning. Um, and that's kind of why I, I think in the end I left IT because I found it such a soul crushing industry because <laughs> it's. One, you have to be on it all the time because the technology is constantly changing. Yeah. So you're all, always trying to trying to learn more and um, spend so many hours in front of a screen hacking away, just trying to fix stuff all the time. Like I found it was just putting fires out all the time it, in my day. Anyway, I think it's different now because technology is so, so much better and smoother and easier and. And, and it's such a throwaway society now. It's like, oh, this is broken. Back then it was like, oh, it's broken. Toss it. Get a new one. Yeah. Kind of thing that, that, well, that's kind of what it's like now. Um, but, but then to make that shift in your life intentionally to look for the meaning and to look for the fulfillment that you, that you probably get out of helping people who are part of your tribe cyclists, right. Yeah. Be able to cycle better, longer, farther, more comfortably by getting a bike fit. Right. Yeah. And it was, it was a long road to that. I mean, there's, I didn't come from any sort of, uh, medical background, right? So trying to learn all of that side of things from the, the kinesiology and the physiology of how all of that functions, um, learning to actually work on the bikes. I wasn't a mechanic either. Um, you know, IT skills don't exactly transfer over. Um, so I just totally immersed myself in that. And, um, early on I was race directing. I was, uh, um, a marketing rep for, a couple of different brands at times. Um, basically whatever I could do to sort of stay in that bike world. Um, 
and slowly over time honing my skills uh, uh, as a bike fitter um, to finally get to a point where I can actually sustain myself just on on that. And um, not that I ever sort of sit still. That's just not who I am. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I can, there's the community building aspect of it, which was really a uh, fulfilling part of race directing is you're kind of creating this community and, and opportunities for cyclists to come together. And, and, and that was super cool. Um, and then as I was going through my divorce, we, um, cause we co-directed those events, we sold those events. Um, and, uh, the, the league, um, the Georgia cycling association was sort of coming together at the same time. So it was pretty easy transition. So I can kind of get my fill of, of community building through that. And, um, and then the, uh, but keep honing those skills of, of bike fitting and, and, um, being able to bring that to the world and help. I mean, what, I can't think of a better thing to do than to, to be able to spend my time helping people have a better cycling experience, um, on a very, um, almost intimate level. Um, and people will come to me at times where they're almost so frustrated they're going to quit cycling. Um, because of injuries and, and that sort of thing. And to be able to turn that around for them is really, really fulfilling. Um, and now I have a few few irons in the fire um, of some devices around bike fitting and just sort of motion tracking. Um, so mm. diving back into the IT world of app making and sensors and that kind of thing. And um, hopefully that comes to fruition here um, in the next year or so. We'll see how, see how that all plays out. Yeah, that's cool. It's cool when you can bring your past career into your new, more fulfilling career, but in a in a more useful way. I think. Yeah. You know, to apply that, are you going to build these devices yourself? Like you're patenting something, or? Um, no. It's more about building um, an app to interpret what those devices are are spitting out. Um, so it's the same technology that that's in your phone that sort of knows what direction it's facing and. Uh, and or moving. Um, so taking that same technology, shrinking it down so it's not a full phone size, um, and be able to place those on the body and then take that information um, through an app and be able to give someone real-time feedback of, hey, don't move that way. You're, that's how you're going to hurt yourself. Um, so in a way that they can interpret. So it's a lot of... Um, kind of complicated information and trying to boil it down to this tiny little essence that they can just be able to interpret and say, okay, I, when I hear that noise, I don't do that thing. And that's basically it. Right. Oh, interesting. That's, that's, that makes any sense. No, it it makes sense to me (laughs) a little bit. Yeah. It it kind of reminds me of, uh, in the movie world where they would, if they want to CGI a character, they would put, um, um, sensors on pivot points and motion points uh, on a green screen. And then they can kind of track, the person's movements and then apply CGI graphics over top of that. So to basically animate a computer generated character yeah, in a more exactly natural way. Same, yeah. Exactly the same technology. And then, um, and then you can show the stick figure to the, to the, to your customer and say, yeah. see how your knee is deflecting. Yeah. That, that's why we're, we're putting the, the shim in your shoe to make sure your knee doesn't flick out. Kind so of thing. we're actually trying to take it a whole nother step where you would go ride with this. So it's not just something ah. that, that you're hanging out with me. Cool. Um, so it's more like a technique instructor that you would, you would have all the time. Um, so that you don't, you know, maybe you do have a habit that you've developed of, 
um, you know, whatever, driving your heel down on your pedal stroke. And that's going to cause Achilles problems mm-hmm. or plantar fascia problems. And you're trying to change that and basically reprogram your nervous system. But yeah. humans, you can't dump the program and put a new one in. You yeah. have to give them this feedback constantly. That habits. Yeah, change your don't habits. Don't do that. Don't yeah. do that. Don't do that until eventually the nervous system comes around and goes, oh, we have a new habit now. So, and, um, so you integrate a small electrical charge that gives the person a shock. <laughs> that that has been discussed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Fuck. Yeah. Um, that's funny. That's cool, man. That's that's a really uh, that's an interesting technology to build. Or even you can use it if you know just even give it to the customer for a week, and then bring it back, take all that data, and extrapolate it into your own fitting. Yeah, and there's a regime. There's a certain amount of data that you could use in real time, and then there's certainly sort of aggregate data that you could be looking at. Um, and of course, it means an app, so it's all cloud based, so they don't even have to come back in. Right. I mean, this right, can right. All be done so seamlessly now with the technology that exists. Um, so it is, it's a new application of it to take it out into the world like this and, and sort of give it to the lay person and, and let them use it. Um, so there's some growing pains there and, and, and sorting some of that out, but it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting stuff. I'm, I'm very excited to see it. And it, it's a path for me to, you know, I love bike fitting and I love the interaction. Um, but it is, I am working in the retail world and that, that does get training and I can only do, you know, a couple of three bike fits a day. So this is a way that I could help, um, lots of people in a fitting aspect, but the applications outside of cycling are, are also massive. Um, so who knows? It's probably the retirement plan is what I'm trying ah, to get to. Cool. Well, that's, that's cool, man. Like, <laughs> so I, I can get back to riding bikes. <laughs> yeah. I look forward to, to following that because that's very cool technology. And then, it, you know, if, if it's something that you've built yourself, obviously, yeah, you can resell it to other bike fitters or, I imagine that's probably maybe in the plan as well. Oh yeah. A little bit of that, but that's just such a small market right. where yeah. you know, we apply this to say runners. That's a whole different massive world that has lots of injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I don't know. We sell it to, you know, new balance or Nike or somebody and, and then I can come back to focus on cycling. Yeah. Cool, man. That's great. Good luck with that. I think, uh, yeah, with your background, I think that'll be a success for sure. Wicked. I wanted to ask you, this is going back a little bit, but not hopping around too, too much in this podcast, but, uh, (laughs) it's, it's funny because, um, my, my experience on, on the divide was that a lot of people have, um, a pretty unhealthy, um, fear in my opinion, or maybe a, a, an amplified fear of grizzly bears. You know, I, I live up here in the mountains and I just, I've encountered grizzlies, you know, a handful of times and they, they don't want anything to do with us. But when, when I looked at some of your posts and, and you're talking about, you know, uh, harvesting water in Florida and the gators are all around, that is fucking terrifying to me. That is terrifying <laughs> to me, like way more terrifying than a grizzly bear. It's I guess it's the same sort of familiarity. Having lived in Florida and, and uh, I go back to Florida almost every winter um, to see family and and do some riding. There's some really great riding down there, but it's. I do catch myself as I get into Florida, like there's a little switch I got to turn on is I'm near water. I have to be aware of the attack logs because um, that's what the gators look like when they're not moving. They look like a log. Attack so log. easy. Oh my God. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> Until they suddenly move. Um, but for the most part, they want nothing to do with you. Um, so it's kind of the same really, isn't it? Yeah. It's, 
there is a certain respect you need to have, right. you know, for any wild animal. Um, but the, the chance of you, you know, actually getting attacked by a gator is pretty slim. Okay. Um, but filtering water is the exact scenario that, it, you know, if a gator is going to ambush you, um, that's the situation it's going to happen is you're at the edge of the water. You're kind of flashing around a little bit like a weak wounded animal. And that's the calling card for Gross. a gator to come at you. That makes me, um, makes me sick to my stomach thinking about that. It just, you're, you just need to be a bit more aware when you're near the water be, just because of it. Can, um, can, I really didn't see many on this trip no. compared to, to others. Um, the other scenario, the one that really worries me more is, you're riding, you know, like on a two track and there's some tall grass next to you and you don't really know how much water is in there and whether there's a gator in there or not. Um, and chances are there's plenty of gators and snakes and whatever in there. Um, and I've had a few, um, and you're kind of riding towards the edge of that grass and I've had a few juveniles snap at me. <laughs> Terrifying. And, and a, <laughs> You know, suddenly you're you're like on the other side of the two track, and you don't even know how you got there. But <laughs> <laughs> that's terrifying. Are there it like py- are there pythons in Florida too? Like like uh, everybody talk. I've, I've never seen. You one. haven't seen one. Not. I haven't spent a lot of time in the Everglades. Um, I mean, I, I did spend many hours on this trip down there, but I've never I've never seen one. I mean, you're much more likely to run into rattlesnakes and and cottonmouths. Um, right. You know, and the chance of a python wrapping you up and, and eating you is basically <laughs> never going to happen. Um, that's even uh, even more illogical than than you know. I I don't want to set my tent up anywhere outside in Florida because a gator's going to eat me. Um, but rattlesnakes, there. I mean, I saw a ton mostly because of the flooding from the hurricane. I think is they were just um, you know their their normal habitat was flooded out, so right. they're they're up on the drier roads where I was at. Yeah. It's so interesting because you know, I've, I've done podcasts with folks in Australia as well. And it's the same thing. I'd be terrified to go down there because it's like all these small animals and scorpions and and and, and spiders and shit like that. Yeah, it's spiders, just like, snakes, scorpions, which we, all, we have all of that in the South. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see any of that. I mean, I don't know if, if the divide is is littered with that kind of stuff further south, but I didn't see any of that. I'm sure there's it's rattlesnakes through there. Yeah, I didn't um, see anything. But I'm yeah, I don't remember even seeing a snake on that route at all. Yeah. Where I was in Nova Scotia. No. Yeah, Nova Scotia. So the day I went to the hospital, I'm hiking through that marsh, and I was like, "Thank God I'm up here where there's no snakes." And then I get you know get back on my bike and I start riding like 20 feet, and this little snake goes by, and I'm like, "Oh, there goes that myth." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but those are probably just gardener snakes, right? They don't, I'm sure they don't do I'm anything. Sure. <laughs> they just run away. But yeah, I wanted to ask you that gator question because that's just it's super terrifying to me to think. But but it's interesting because um, I think most like people are afraid of bears and say gators, but um, I've encountered uh, I've been approached by an elk. Like I was like 75 yards away from an elk, a hundred yards away from this elk. And it just, it saw me and I wasn't doing anything. I was just doing my thing. And it just trotted right up to me and like looked at me. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like what? So I, I think that it's not just, it's like any, any wildlife. If you threaten it in any way, sure. Like a Turkey, we have wild turkeys that run around in Vermeer all over the place. And uh, if you threaten them in any way, they'll, They'll get all worked up and yeah, they'll puff up. Yeah, and they'll or like peck the, at your feet and stuff. So. What was the oh the grouse out there? 
Oh yeah. Uh, you, and I think that's just their whole like defense thing is just yeah. to puff up, make a lot of noise and scare the heck out of you while yeah. they get away. Yeah. But it freaks you out because totally. you don't know what's coming. Yeah, totally. But every, you know, it's funny cause yeah, for tour divide, it was, it was bears and, um, I guess mountain lions, um, that everybody seems to be scared of. And it was the cows that, that scared the heck out of me because they'll let you get like 10 feet away and then they freak out, <laughs> you know, you know but and of course they're all over the road and you have to go through them. Yeah. And so you don't really, I mean, I guess you have a choice, but you don't really have a choice. You want to, you want to keep moving forward and they'll let you get right up close and then they'll start jumping around and that's, you know, that's 900,000 pounds of a cow. <laughs> yeah. And they have those dead eyes too. They just have those dead kind of yeah. like dumb <laughs> eyes. Yeah. I, I, during my yo-yo last summer, I had, there were doing, there were some ranchers, um, rustling up some cattle, like 300 head. And they asked me to wait because they're freaked out of people on bikes. So I was, I was waiting, but I, I listened to the way they were kind of wrangling them and they would like get in behind them and like, ha ha, they'd yell at them and, yeah. and that would kind of get them going. So, uh, I'm trying to think it was coming out of coming off of union pass. And then there's that really long stretch before you hit the pavement. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was, it was, um, mosquito lake. I think so. Yeah. And it was, it was super, it was yeah, just through cow field and the same thing. They're all over the road. And my buddy, Tim took a video of me approaching them. And I was, I just did that. I rode right up to them right in the middle of the road. So I was like, ha ha. And they all just kind of like waked. They just kind of <laughs> made a wake for me. So that was my, that was my MO. It's just a Good yell technique. at them. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed to work anyway. Yeah. It's funny. Things you learn, things you learn on the trail. I had a, um, a moment I re- in, that I, actually got to record too with this bull moose um in new brunswick Ooh. and i i basically just talked to him like a like a big dog yeah and uh you know just like I, if i was you know trying to deter the neighbor's dog from pooping in my lawn basically <laughs> like you don't want to do that you want to well, go that way and they could be dangerous like oh yeah really yeah, dangerous I, was, yeah. I wasn't about to to rush the thing for no. sure yeah I, he definitely pushing a thousand pounds oh and, for sure and I, 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 I mean, the only thing I could do would go into the brush and, and this guy, I mean, he turned towards me for a second and then he turned away and went off into the woods. And, uh, and I, I'd like to think like, Oh, I just, you know, I'd get into the thicker brush or whatever and, and I'd be safer cause he's got that huge rack on his head. That thing walked off into the brush and didn't even make a noise. Like it might as well have been a mountain lion disappearing into the brush. It was, <laughs> I was like, okay, everything I think I know about moose is probably wrong. Well, that's their <laughs> that's their jam. Like that's where they live. Right. They know how to navigate that stuff. I, yeah. I think there is something like you could, could probably hide behind a big tree or something like that. But yeah, I think that's why they're built like that. You know, they're like, yeah, they're just built to be able to navigate through all that. that they, obviously terrain. they can get around because oh, yeah. they're still here. <laughs> yeah. I remember riding in Alaska and, and uh, you know, Alaskan moose are just <laughs> crazy. They're like the size of a bus. They're massive. And, uh, and of course, Anchorage is super touristy when we were there and, and I just, we were riding along this trail to get to some, some, uh, single track and there was a bunch of tourists and they probably were, were within like 10 or 20 feet of this bull. And we were just like, I'm not sticking around here. This is crazy, mm-hmm. man. They're massive. They're just massive. And maybe they're accustomed to people. I, you know, I considered that maybe they just don't care because they know people just aren't a threat to them. So yeah, you also don't want to be there when you find out otherwise. No, no way. They'll stomp you to hell. So anyway, I guess the point of it all is, is just like wildlife is wildlife. You know, they're going to, 
you know, if you, if you threaten them in any way, I've never been charged by a cow, but I remember seeing a post on Instagram. I can't remember what the gravel race was, but watch it. You probably saw it too. Um, like a bull, oh, yeah, a bull yeah. bucking people off their bikes. That was terrifying yeah. too. Like super terrifying. So it's not just the grizzlies yeah. and the gators. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, what, you know, even domesticated animals. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially what you're find like out bike packing. It's not like a petting farm kind of, you know, cow that that's interacting with people on a daily basis. Yeah. They're just out there grazing uh, grasslands or wildlands, whatever. Yeah. And they're not interacting with people every day. So they don't know exactly what to do. And, and so funny. So counterintuitively to all of this, I, I went with a friend to the island um, a couple months ago, Vancouver Island, and we went to this hobby farm and uh, they're giving us a tour of this farm and, and we walk into a, the field where they, I think they had four cows and uh, the owner of the farm's like, I can't remember the cow's names. So like, Hey Millie or whatever. And the cow just like <laughs> picks up its head, just trots over to us and we're petting it and scratching its neck. And it was so, <laughs> so weird. Like it was just so counterintuitive because usually they're, Again, they're just so they're so dumb, right? But but this cow came up and it was like even nuzzling into me. It's like, yeah, keep scratching my neck, keep scratching. It was just like this is so weird, so weird. So, but that's different. That's happy farm, right? Super happy. They take good care of their yeah, animals. Exactly. They're not just uh, they're interacting on a regular. Yeah, they're not just a commodity, basically piece um, of, piece of meat. <laughs> there did seem to be a sort of demarcation of uh, with dogs as I got into the south. Um, I can't remember if it was West Virginia or Virginia, but it was like suddenly I have to be very mm-hmm. aware because um, people let their dogs roam free right. um, and they get territorial. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I had several several close calls there. Um, I did have like a, a little can of um, pepper spray, dog spray that I kind of I had just in case there was you know some issue with a black bear or a dog, but. To be honest, that's like the one thing that I carried that I probably should have just gotten, never even picked up, to be honest, because right. it just never used it. And it never even occurred to me to use it. It's more, usually I just squirt them with my water bottle, and that's enough to get them to back down for a second to get away. But yeah. sometimes you're climbing, and it doesn't doesn't give you enough inspiration. <laughs> I know. I was like, I can't remember where it was in New Mexico, but you hear all about the New Mexican stretches of, of dogs chasing you. But luckily, it was a flat section. I just remember riding along, and... I had, you know, every time I'd see a house, I'd see if they had a dog and this dog came running for me from so far away, but it was full on. It was just like, Oh, I'm going to get this rider. (laughs) I was just running. Just grabbed a handful of gears and took off. But, but uh, it gave me a bit of a, you know, cause it was running. It, it had a goal in mind and I was like, Holy shit, here we go. And by then I had dumped my bear spray in Wamsutter. So I didn't have my spray anymore. So yeah, I was just going to kick it. I did have to kick a dog one dog but i had a few a few that that ended up getting kicked they were just not backing down and yeah. i couldn't move fast enough to get away yeah and uh, and the faster you move the more aggressive they get too right so like i think it's yeah. it's hard to to convince yourself to just slow down and even even getting off your bike they'd probably just stop they probably wouldn't i've i've had that happen before where i just had to stop it was more because there was a big group um this was and not on this trip, but in Florida. Um, and they were kind of coming at me from all directions. And I was like, all right, I can't really get out of the situation with, with just speed. And it was, um, it was very wet. So 
probably like riding through kind of fresh snow probably be the same equivalent where there's a lot of resistance right. and you just it's very hard to uh especially with a bike packing rig to to go fast so i just i just stopped and uh and got off the bike and they they realize that you're a human and not a threat and then they all just kind of calm down and oh, god that's the way that's that's courageous <laughs> to get off your bike wrecking moment because i was i i didn't really have any other option it wasn't like it was an intentional like oh i'm just gonna step off my bike and these dogs will leave me alone it was like uh all right this is my one option yeah i'm gonna get off the bike and uh because i can't ride the bike fast enough and i actually have better defense if i'm off the bike and um, i can't even remember if i had bear spray or not um but it very rarely i mean there's so many times in situations like that it just my brain does not go to the bear spray. It just doesn't, doesn't yeah. occur to me. Yeah, I know, right? It's interesting. Um, how did the bike fare through that that distance? So what was it, 5,900 miles, right? Um, that's the advertised. My actual mileage ended up being 62, like 62.35, I think. Wow, um, that's far. Uh, and some of that is sort of backtracking where I was, especially in the scouting sections. Um, where I had to backtrack and find a different way around. Um, but also a lot of times you got to go off route to, to get resupply. Mm. Um, and you know, a few miles here or there every day adds up pretty quickly on, you know, on 79 days. Um, but the bike fared pretty well. Um, I used a rodeo labs flannel, um, with some, uh, redshift, uh, Suspension, seat post, and stem. Um, I had some aero bar pads on there and used their uh, Redshift kitchen sink um, with the loop out front and some decent size size. So 650 wheels on it with a 2.2 in the back and a um, 235 up front. So I had some squish, um, you know, just a little bit of suspension. That's, you know, like 20 millimeters front and rear to take the edge off and the aero bars to get off the hands occasionally. Um, and the only real issues that I had were um, with the brakes. And I used um, a tram AXS shifting as the rival um, brakes. And uh, they're just not made for this. Um, so I kept, uh, I blew through pads pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. And, and it took me a little while to figure out sort of the, the how to make it all work is I, in, in New Brunswick, I had gone through the pads almost to the um, to the shoe. That quickly, hey? Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, that's close to a thousand miles. So okay, fair enough. Yeah, um, and no, no, I was kind of doing the same thing too, where it's like, oh man, that's not that far, but really, it's that far. Um, and so, I got some new brake pads in there, but the pistons would push in too far. And then I put new pads in there, and now they're they're dragging. Um, and so from from um, Fredericton all the way into um, Holton, which is where you cross over into Maine, and that was like I don't know 200 miles or so. My brakes were dragging. Yeah. Um, and that's just mentally, it's so yeah. painful, and physically, it's painful. <laughs> and uh, so I had to um, go off route, catch a ride down 95 to get down to a bike shop and get that sorted out. And, um, and then the, then, so, and I did that work myself. Um, they didn't have mechanics at the shop that oh, day. No. So, um, so I let some, 
some fluid out of it to take the pressure off, right? And so then fast forward to the next day and I get whatever, 50 miles into the day and um, they're fading because I'd let that pressure off and now some of the brake pad had gone away. And and so for the next like two or three days, they were fading more and more until I didn't have brakes again. They need a bleed, and, right? Need to get a, yeah, so yeah. I get to another town and they bleed them and that, that sorted itself out. What I ended up doing was just changing the pads more often. So I, I would run them down about halfway, you know, or so, maybe a little, maybe two thirds, and then replace them before they got pushed in too far. Right. Um, but that, I mean, that all comes back to me not using this bike on a on a bike packing trip at all before this right. because of the, all the supply chain issues. The bike wasn't even built until June, um, and then I built it up to do the onbound gravel in in Kansas, which was a totally different setup to. Mm for, um, for this trip. So it wasn't loaded and 700 wheels and all these different things. And, um, so, you know, that's like rule number one, right? Don't use anything new. Well, everything was brand new. And that, and that, that plays back into what we were talking about earlier of, of the, uh, the failures and your opportunities to learn. Yeah. Um, we'll just add that to the list of things that I did wrong and I was trying not to do the next day. How many, uh, how about your drivetrain? Did you go through a lot of chains or? Um, I think it ended up being four chains, yeah. um, three cassettes, probably 10 sets of brake pads, wow. a couple of brackets. Um, These things aren't cheap, man. I'm telling you. No. Not no, cheap. Purchased most of that ahead of time and, and sent it out to myself um, kind of with a plan at about every 2,000-ish miles that I would you know, redo the drivetrain and the tires. Um but there was also some other instances where it was just time to change things out. Um, and a lot of that was very, uh, weather dependent. So from the first half of my ride, there was quite a bit of rain, you know, so I'm going to go through brake pads and change a bit faster through that. And then the second half, um, the South has been in a drought, um, and that played into my favor. So things were pretty dry. I, don't think I had any significant rain anyways from like West Virginia all the way to Key West, which is nearly half the route, which I was very thankful for because awesome. um, I had way more than I wanted in the first half. Cool, man. Um, I'm over here changing my, my hand position constantly because my fingers are getting so cold because I have, uh, what do they call it, rain odds now from, from all the cold and wet um, in that first part. And I hope that I hope that goes away. So you just the numbness. I got a little numbness, like nerve numbness, um, in between my, my pinky and, and ring finger. Um, that's more like compression vibration and bike fit related. Um, that there's a couple of reasons why I think that happened, but the actual cold in all of my fingers, um, that's more from, you know, when you get really cold and really wet, Right, all that your, your body's gonna start pulling that circulation back um and apparently that doesn't go away right away <laughs> oh so it's like another like you have to wait for the, what those those blood vessels to yeah allow I, more I, blood I, through the system back. i don't know enough about it to right. find, I haven't I haven't done much research on that end of it um and then yeah the numbness thing i up into new york i was really good um and then I changed my seat post and saddle because I knew the saddle was going to be worn out um, 
just being that it was 2,500 miles in, my experience on Tour Divide was that saddle, you know, whatever it is, 2750, 2800 was, was toast. So I wanted to be ahead of that. And, um, and I set it up like, we'll say like a millimeter too high. Like it was just enough to tip some weight out in my hands and, oh, and cause sores. And I didn't really catch it for a day or two. Um, you know, you, you get used to ignoring things on these kind of trips. Yeah. And, um, but once I adjusted the saddle, it was okay, but it took a while for the numbness to go away. And I didn't have a replacement further down the trail where I probably should have. Um, so I put a new saddle on in Tallahassee, but it wasn't my usual saddle of choice. So I was just kind of playing with that through the last thousand miles, just trying to, you know, basically try to fit myself on the fly, which yeah. is a horrible way to go. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'd got it pretty close and then mostly just relied on using the arrow bars cause it was Florida and flat and I could get off my hands and not have to worry about it too much. But, yeah. um, it's, it's noticeably better almost every day. There's yeah. a, a touch more more feeling so i should be good here i was shocked on the on i finished the divide with no undercarriage issues no numbness no back or neck pain um yeah i think i got really lucky got really lucky with that are you running out of juice no i just needed to grab my water bottle (laughs) (laughs) what saddle did you run i was running a cell anatomica um i use a physique tundra Mm. Um, so probably the other end of the spectrum that's very flat and stiff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mine's like a um, hammock. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, and I know they're, they're sort of comfortable that way. Um, but the downside I, I see in those is that this, for me, the saddle is sort of a push point and, and right. if that push point moves, you can't get near as much torque into the pedal stroke. Yeah. And so it's comfortable, but now I'm moving slower. you know a stiffer saddle i'm certainly not the most comfortable especially riding off road and and hitting the bumps so i use that that redshift c post as a sort of a a relief to that and i set it up as stiff as possible um so that basically it was there for the you know the potholes and roots and whatever i just didn't see coming and get out of the saddle yeah Um, and it's a saddle i've been using for 10 or 12 years so yeah stick with what you know right yeah. custom to yeah exactly yeah especially on the contact points um stick to what you know cool um it's been great talking to you i think i want to land this plane it's been great okay. to hear your stories thanks for telling so many stories no worries um <laughs> yeah it's fun it's fun to share right yeah and how and is I, I did have a couple more questions like yeah um yeah thanks for sharing and how is how is your integration back to reality being <laughs> um it's challenging. And, uh, I think the, uh, and I, I knew this was coming from after tour divide. Um, so, but it's challenging. And I think a lot of it is the, the mental space to, that I have to go to, to sort of deal with the uncomfortableness of, of being on the bike every day like that and the big miles and, um, and the stress, I think of some of all of that, like get a bit numb and kind of, um, be able to turn off a lot of that focus because um, you can't just be in your head focused on all the things that hurt and how frustrating things are or whatever. So you kind of turn that off, but those are actually useful skills when you get back in the real world right? Um, and they yeah. suddenly click back on because you're back in the real world. Yeah, um, so it's, you know, just being able to sit, uh, to sit in front of my laptop and do work. Like I, um, 
yeah, I just catch myself totally zoning out. Right. I just sat there for 15 minutes doing nothing and uh, accomplishing nothing. <laughs> get um, it, it's easier to get into the flow state, right? You're just like, oh, you can yeah. just zone right out. No problem. And the Also, I had, you know, two and a half months of just days of dopamine um, and all, all, the, all the endorphins of exercising all day long. Yeah. And to suddenly turn that off too is a little rough. And, um, of course the, the answer to that is just get back on your bike and ride some more. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be a 12 hour day, but yeah. you know, an hour certainly makes a difference. So, um, I'm conscious of that and trying to, you know, do the self care things, you know, get my bike ride in here and there. And, um, but really the, the focusing on things has been the, the more challenging part. Like to sit here and tell stories, I could do this all day long. Yeah, yeah. It's the front of my laptop and, and, reply to emails that I just can't seem to get my head around yet, <laughs> but I need to cause that's work and I need some work. It's been a few months. Yeah. There always, there always needs to be this margin of, of time, like before and after these things to, you know, to plan the logistics, which I think is often the hardest part is like all the planning that you did. And then all the, all the packing you did and the mail outs you did. And then when you get to the other end and you're finished, then it's like that, that reintegration and that recovery time, getting sleep back on track, you know, yeah. getting focused back on track. It's Not uh, the 5,000 calories a day. Oh my God, dude. <laughs> I, I had lost so much weight on the divide and now I just feel, yeah, it's all back, man. It's kind of sad, but I got to get back on the bike more for sure. Um, what's next for you? Going back uh, to that question that you were asked on that last podcast, now that you've done the EDT, what's next? Um, you know, I don't have a good answer for it. And okay. from a bikepacking standpoint, anyways, um, I've got some you know, small things planned. I'm going to do a, a like a 60 mile race this weekend, and then a, um, a little overnight trip the following weekend. So just kind of ease back into okay. doing things more at a normal uh, volume as far as riding goes. Um, I don't have some big adventure planned. Um, I'm not sure that my relationship would withstand that if I was suddenly like, Hey, I'm going to go do this another month, nor my bank account would yeah. probably, um, the shops that I have relationships with would probably just give up on me. Like he's right. never coming. He's gone totally feral. Uh, <laughs> but also, um, you know, that sensor, um, and, and app, um, project business that I was talking about earlier, I think that's going to be a much bigger focus here in the next year or so. And, um, that'll be its own adventure and, and trying to take that from a, um, you know, building up of an idea and making a proof of concept to let's turn this into a business and, and see where that goes. Um, so I, I foresee that being a bigger, bigger part of my life here, um, over the next couple of years. And then, uh, and then I'll definitely get an itch and go find something to do, but I think it'll be more, I don't know, probably more fun, um, than, absolute supper fest or go do a race like Tour Divide or something like that. I'm thinking like, you know, let's go do 600 miles in Italy and, and mm. you know, stop every 60 miles and eat food and drink wine and, and have a great time and not necessarily the, the supper fest of, of what this last trip was. Yeah. It's about balance, right? Got to balance yeah. it all out over life. And I, I think that's good. You know, the, you have that new project to focus on and I wish you all the luck with that. I think it sounds awesome. And I wanted to congratulate you on the ride and the money you raised and give you an opportunity to, to thank a bunch of people if you'd like to do that right now. 
Yeah. Um, so certainly want to thank the Georgia Cycling Association. And if anybody's interested in, in making a donation, if you followed the, the ride at all and enjoyed that, please, please do that. It's uh, um, georgiacycling.org. Um, and you should be able to find that that donation page pretty quickly. Um, and they were helpful on so many levels. Um, but also, um, you know, my girlfriend, Audrey, um, <clears throat> her patience in this thing was, was quite amazing. Um, my dog for remembering who I was, <laughs> uh, and my family was super supportive. My parents actually came out on route for a day, which was pretty awesome. And, um, um, lots of other family as well. But, uh, and then the shops that I worked with for being patient, uh, while I was gone, Bob's and free flight. Um, and then all the sponsors and, and rodeo lab and Redshift and, uh, Rockgeist, um, bags and CBD stat torque nutrition, Smith optics, um, chamois butter, um, so much chamois butter. Uh, <laughs> um, and then uh, the fit system that I use, WM Precision, and, and our new company, which is 3D Wearable. Um, they were also very patient in me stepping out for, for three months. And uh, uh, I may have just got out of the way of helping them produce things better and faster. So that, that might have actually been a plus. So, But uh, yeah, I think that's in and, and, um, bikepacking.com for sort of pulling together um, all the collaborators for this route and all those people that did. Uh, there's dozens of people that worked on this route over the years, um, to make it all happen. And, and they're still involved. There's still people. It's such a dynamic route. I don't know that that'll ever change. So, um, and then all of those random people, um, Canadians and Americans, uh, and Ukrainians, actually, I met some Ukrainians, um, that just went out of their way to, to help me out and show me kindness, um, feed me, um, and, Every single one of them, every little bit of that is these rides don't happen without it. So thank you for humanity. (laughs) That's awesome, Eddie. I think that's a great way to end it. So thanks for your time today. I really appreciate you. And uh, yeah, keep me keep me in mind if you ever want to talk about your new company and and as that's progressing and we can have another podcast. I'd love that. I will. Um, and, and thank you for that. And, and best in luck with, uh, all the things that you're juggling at the moment. Yes. Uh, there is, there is highs after the lows. Yeah. Thanks brother. I appreciate you. No worries. Take care. All right. You too. Have a good one. Peace. I want to thank Eddie again for his time and thank all of you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. What a amazing journey that must've been. And also to, to get that amount of time. I mean, I know it's a bit of a risk sometime. Like, like he said in the podcast, it's sometimes it's risky, especially when you run your own business to just kind of fuck off like that for almost for over two months and, and just uh, have an adventure. But I think it's so important in life to be able to try to take that time when you can to write a couple chapters, a couple new chapters for your life, right? Stuff you could tell your grandkids about or your family about. And uh, it's super important, I think, for mental health. So I want to thank you again for tuning in. I hope you dug it. If you have any comments or feedback, don't forget to send them to me, mybag40podcast at gmail.com. That's also the email you can send voice intros, feedback, guest suggestions. Uh, Voice intros, I love hearing from you. I have a couple in the bank right now. I'm going to hang on to them because I don't get as many as I'd like to. But don't be shy. Whip out your device, record me something, and send it to myback40podcast at gmail.com, and I will get it on the show. I love hearing from you. It's a kind of the kind of engagement that I think really makes the MyBack40 community special. So don't be afraid. Reach out. Send me a message. 
Other great ways you can support the podcast is you can give me a five-star rating and a review on your favorite listening platform. Five stars and reviews go a long way to kind of tweaking the algorithm and making the podcast available to more people when they're searching for bike-related uh, or endurance-related or mental health-related podcasts. I want to be there. So please, if you can, if you think about it, five-star rating and a review will really help me out. If you find value in the podcast, then please consider supporting me financially. If you saw me on the street, you might want to buy me a coffee or buy me a beer, maybe buy me lunch. You can do that easily using PayPal or you can use my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash myback40. And at this time in my life, I could really use your support. So again, if you find value in the content that I'm putting out there and you want to support me financially, please PayPal, Patreon, um, and check out the store. I have a few things in the store left. Check out the inventory. There's some shirts. Um, I still have some stickers and whatnot to sell, but I've, I definitely let my, my inventory dwindle and, um, but I have some plans to replenish that in the near future. So please feel free to check out myback40.org slash support. You can check out the store, myback40.org slash store, or just check out some of the other stuff I put out there, myback40.org slash podcast and slash words. If you want to check out some of my writing and you haven't done so already, hoping to get back on the writing train soon. But anyway, Thank you again for tuning in. Uh, I can't wait to continue to bring you great podcasts. I do have some guests lined up. I need to reach back out to them. Uh, my world is a bit of a gong show right now. And, <laughs> and when I find more bandwidth, I'm going to be com committing that to these conversations. But during this time of upheaval, I guess, if you'd like to say, um, finding the bandwidth to dedicate to these conversations has been quite difficult. So for those of you that I've reached out to, Megan, Tatiana, uh, to name a couple. Um, I am going to reach out to you soon and we're going to have a chat and I cannot wait. So until then, get out there, ride bikes, sleep in the woods and keep the rubber side down. Bye.